Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com I, got, I mean, that's why Starbucks is a billionaire company. I gotta be putting some of that black stuff in. I can't get started. If somebody were to say to Joe Scarborough, you're talking about taking in old black Joe. <laughs> I remember in the Second World War, my dad was in the war. We, Why do you call it Joe? Dad said, it stands for old black Joe. <laughs> See, that was the most important thing in the Army, your coffee. Morning, Joe. You know, right? See, all of this stuff is connected. A man from Billings, Montana, is now apologizing and claiming that he is not racist at all after he uh, received a lot of backlash for saying negative things about black people and Hillary Clinton on Facebook. Now, this all started when there was a video posted on Facebook uh, which showed a group of black people uh, beating up a white guy. That's how it's being described in the media. And apparently this man, Larry Hefner, who is the owner of the coffee shop, Coffee Tavern, which is set to uh, launch pretty soon, commented and said the following. These fucking monkeys would be hanging if I saw this shit. You don't see white people do this shit. Um, Not remotely true. Like, for example, when you hang them. Right. So uh, that was just one of many comments that he posted on Facebook that got him in a lot of trouble. Let me give you some more examples. Before last week's election, Hefner shared an image of Trump in the White House with a caption that read, if Trump wins the election, it will be the first time in history that a billionaire moves into public housing vacated by a black family. He also wrote in an earlier post about Hillary Clinton, "She she needs, I guess, to be fucked with a bat, right up her liberal fucking ass. 
And then the day before the election, when Hefner apparently thought Trump was going to lose, he posted this message. The coffee tavern will never recognize a murdering whore for president. Don't like it? Keep the fuck out. We don't tolerate scum. Now, interestingly enough, after he posted all this stuff, uh, people started attacking him on social media, and then people started saying that they would boycott his business, which, again, is set to launch soon. It hasn't launched yet. And... Uh, as soon as he realized that his business and his business partners could suffer as a result of his behavior online, he started to apologize. He said, I completely apologize. It was the dumbest thing I ever did. And then he said, the people that know me know I'm not like that. I just hope that this community can overlook the stupid comments I made. Nobody's ever racist. You can call them monkeys and say you'd like to lynch and hang them, but still not racist. I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not like that. And what does that mean, I, I, I'm not like that? I, I don't normally, what, fuck women in the ass with bats? I hope you don't normally do that. So, but this is not a slip of the tongue. This is not, and look, if all he did was post that stupid joke about the public housing, I know a lot of dorky folks in the middle of the country, or here, anywhere, right? Yeah. Who are like, oh, I get public housing, and a black guy, like, ah. Okay, whatever, I don't mind your dorkiness. It's a little annoying, but we can live with it. But... All of these comments, calling people monkeys, talking about what you're going to do to Hillary Clinton with a bat. Yeah, I think it's the it's the violent imagery that comes along with some of the things that he posted, right? Hanging people, fucking people in the ass with a bat. Um, you know, that kind of language goes beyond, you know, racism to me. I, I, it makes it seem as though you might be a dangerous person. Like, who thinks like that? Okay, I know that some people have racial bias. I know that some people, unfortunately, are prejudiced against certain groups of people. That's a really sucky part of society that we have to deal with, we have to, you know, find solutions for. But when you start using violent imagery like that in order to get your point across, I don't know, I just, I worry about you. And, and his reaction, by the way, I, I was reading multiple, you know, articles about this because I wanted to see who he is as a person. You know, maybe this is just an inaccurate depiction of who he is. I don't know, give him the benefit of the doubt, which, whatever. I want to do my due diligence. And he was like, what? I mean, I'm married to a Native American woman. I've been married to her for 30 years. I employ plenty of Native American people. Some of my best friends are black. I kid you not, he made a statement like that. Well, Look, it doesn't matter how many black friends you have. If you're using language like this about a specific community, then it shows that you have a problem with that community. You, anyway. It's so obvious, but we have to keep saying it because there's knuckleheads out there you, there's nothing you can say that they would call racist. And, but, okay, let's, one more thing. Let's just talk about the irony here. When he said, well, white people would never do that, commit that kind of violence. Yeah. Except for the literal lynchings where they hung people like you threatened to do. And you say, oh, that's in history. Don't go back to history. Because if you go back to history, a lot of white folks did a lot of terrible violence. But who went back to history? Did we go back to history or did he go back to history? Why did he specifically mention hangings? Why did you mention hangings in the context of a group of black people that you disagreed with? Yeah. You went back to history, right? Yeah. Like, I'm so tired of that. I'm so yeah. tired of that argument. Let's move forward. No, no, you guys keep bringing all that violent imagery back up. Emmett Till, I never heard of him. In Chicago today, many do not know the name of Emmett Till. What can you tell me about Emmett Till? The lynching of 14-year-old Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955 
is widely viewed as a moment that the brutal reality of the Jim Crow South entered the consciousness of a wider American nation and sparked the beginning of the civil rights movement, or it was one of those events that sparked the modern civil rights movement. But chances are you haven't heard the story about how Emmett Till's killers were let off the hook and the key role his father may have played in their acquittal. My next guest, John Edgar Weidman, a MacArthur Fellow and two-time Penn Faulkner Award winner, discovered that Emmett Till's father, Louis Till, died at a young age under tragic and suspicious circumstances, much like his son. His book about these events is titled Writing to Save a Life, the Louis Till File. John Edgar Weidman, welcome to WNC. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. What got you interested in the story of Emmett Till this far down the road? This far down the road, well, uh, I ran into him much further up the road uh, many years ago when I was his age, when I was Emmett Till's age, I saw Emmett's picture in Jet Magazine, famous, famous photo uh, that circulated first in the black journals of the time, magazines, newspapers. But I saw it in Jet. My Aunt Geraldine handed it to me, and it scared the cowboy crap out of me. Here was a young man, my age, uh, and suddenly he was dead, and dead in a brutal, brutal way, and I saw myself in him. If it happened to him, why couldn't it happen to me? And my family had roots in South Carolina. My father, my, uh, my father's father uh, grew up in a place called Promised Land, and he had always wanted me in the summertime to go back with him to South Carolina and see the ancestral territory, uh, turf, and meet the relatives, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't want to go, mostly because I liked to play basketball and summer outdoor courts, and I had my eye on the NBA. <laughs> so I would, I, and also, I had heard the stories about the South, the old-time stories, that no... African-American man at that time, Negro man, was safe in the South. Anyway, uh, so I had, I had a visceral identity with Emmett Till. Uh, when I learned many years later uh, that his father had been executed by the U.S. Army, of course, my ears uh, pricked up, and I had unfinished business with Emmett. And the father was a way to get back to that business. Then the Emmett Till business got to be my intro to the father. And it's the Lewis Till business that will be the newest to the most people. So who was Lewis Till? Lewis Till was an African-American man. He was probably born in Missouri. Uh, he was an inmate or uh, a patron. Uh, uh, he, he was uh, – held, raised in an orphanage in Missouri, a fairly famous orphanage that was partly uh, organized by a, a, a black woman whose name I do not know, but it was a famous place. There weren't many orphanages for people of color in Missouri uh, at that time. And so uh, Lewis Till grew up there, those very, uh, very obscurely, of course, as an orphan. And once he grew old enough to take a job, he got a chance to go to Chicago 
and he was part of the, in a, in a sense, still part of the a late edge of that great migrations of, of people from the South, black people from the South, going to the North to work, looking for freedom, looking for opportunities. And he was one of those guys. He went to Argo, Illinois, got a job uh, at the uh, Argo um, plant where they made things like, they made mostly things from corn oil. But anyway, uh, he met Mamie Till, Mamie Till Carthon. Uh, they uh, they had a kid. Uh, by the time he met her, uh, it was wartime. Just about World War II was beginning. And uh, Till, like a lot of other uh, men, uh, was drafted into the Army. But his story is kind of special because at the beginning, the War Department didn't know whether they wanted to... Uh, induct, draft African-American men or not. The Army was definitely segregated, and so Till was one of those people who were sort of on the fence. But Lewis Till was not a good guy. He screwed up in lots and lots of ways. Uh, with the law, with his family, he wasn't your ideal father. Uh, he had trouble. He, in, he assaulted Mamie once or twice. She had to defend herself. Anyway, he was in and out of trouble. Rape, and, and, rape and murder charges in Italy, right? Uh, well, that's later. Uh, I'm, I'm giving you the slow sure. motion, uh, <laughs> Lewis Till, because people don't know about him. Yeah, he was an ordinary guy, but I didn't choose him because he was special. That he that he was uh, representative of some kind of paragon of virtue. He's just an ordinary guy, and he and he had a life that was checkered even at the beginning. But he's still a young kid. Uh, he was given a choice, actually join the army or go to jail. And so this whole business of the United States not knowing what to do with black troops sort of passed him over because he was sent to uh, to the military uh, as an option uh, instead of going to jail. So he went in in 1943. The army didn't decide until after that to... Uh, uh, induct large numbers of African-American men. And in fact, in our great war, uh, as some people like to think of it, uh, there was a draft limbo. Thousands of African-American citizens volunteered, but none were taken. They just sort of floated around. And then when then when things were, were getting worse and worse, uh, we were losing the war. The black soldiers suddenly became welcome, but not as real soldiers as sort of working people. Can I jump you ahead to how Lewis Till died? Lewis Till died on a gallows. Uh, he, I have what purports to be a picture of him marching, marched to the gallows and, and a, another photo of him on the gallows. I'm not sure they're authentic, but the author of a book says they are. Uh, the Fifth Field was the name of the book. Anyway, he died on the gallows. He had been convicted in a court-martial of uh, rape and murder. Two Italian women uh, had been allegedly raped, and one murdered the same on the same night. Uh, until and another GI, another African American GI, were convicted of their uh, of their death and rape. And what's the connection? that you draw in the book between Lewis Till and 
the murderers of his son going free? In some ways, it's it's simple. Uh, there was a very uh, public uh, murder trial of a man named Malum and his brother-in-law, Bryant. And they were accused of murdering Emmett Till. Uh, there was an eyewitness, Till's uncle, who, he, who Till had been sent to visit, who's, who's, who identified Milam and Bryant in a courtroom, said, yeah, these were the guys who came and took my nephew from Chicago out of, the, out of my house at 2 o'clock in the morning under gunpoint. And uh, the next time the witness, whose name was Mose Wright, saw his nephew, uh, Emmett Till, was in the bottom of a boat with a hole in his head. Uh, he had been in, thrown in the Tallahatchie River and been floating around with a, a cotton gin uh, wire to his neck for a couple of days. So it was a pretty open and shut case, you would think. You would think. But the two men were found not guilty after uh, about a half an hour, about a 60-minute trial. And the jury said it wouldn't have taken that long if we hadn't stopped for pop to get a pop. So it was a notorious trial. It occurred during the uh, time, the 1950s, mid-50s, when there was an ideological conflict between uh, the, uh, the United States and Russia. Uh, the Cold War was in full swing. So it was a very embarrassing situation for our government. And they put some pressure on, I think, uh, uh, on Mississippi. And the two men who were the obvious killers, who in fact confessed to killing Lewis Till, uh, Emmett Till later. And there's a magazine article uh, written about it. They got paid to confess. They didn't feel threatened because they had already been tried once. Anyway, trial, not guilty. Hey, find something to charge them on, said the government. So kidnapping became the obvious charge since that was already in the record. Even a local sheriff had attested to the fact that the two men told him that they had taken Emmett away at 2 o'clock in the morning. So a second trial was probably going to be held. It was supposed to be held. And then the news of Lewis Till's execution by the Army, rape, murder. So the small chance that these guys, these good Mississippi boys who had been soldiers themselves and were pillars of their community, it was impossible that they were going to be indicted for kidnapping, and they weren't. And so the mother of uh, Emmett Till had to watch this situation, which none of her, no, these guys were going to be confu uh, uh, convicted of no crime and not even accused of any crime whatsoever. Meaning it became legally and sort of politically less possible to indict and convict them because a story had gotten out about what Emmett Till's father had done, which was not at all related to what they had done? The way you're putting it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, because you don't have to transpose that thinking, your, your expression very much, to say, uh, well, if he's one of those and he did X, Y, or Z and got punished for it, he probably had it coming because that's how they are. And father like son, fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree. Uh, hey, we probably did the state and the country 
a favor by getting rid of this kid, Emmett, because look at his father. Mm. He was going to grow up to be one of those sorts of men, killer, rapist, etc., etc. So the, the logic, the perverse logic follows very clearly, yes, unfortunately. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Racial tensions leading students at Ladue High School to walk out of class in protest today. News Force Kelly Davis spent the day talking to those students as well as administrators. She joins us live in the Bomberito Street Fleet. Kelly? Claire, there was a lot of tension out here earlier today in front of Ladue High School. There were about 100 people who came together, both students, staff, even parents, to express their concerns with the way the school district is handling racial issues. You can take a look at some of this video. There were nearly 100 people out here in protest gathered outside the school. Students walked out of class around noon to join their parents. The group marched down the street several blocks to the administration building. They say the school is not dealing with racial issues. Just last week, a student says she was taunted by another student who was white and told she belonged at the back of the bus now that Trump is president. The school says they disciplined that student, but some say it wasn't enough and that this has been an issue for a long time. It makes me feel not only angry, it makes me feel disappointed. It makes me feel like... It makes me feel like I'm not worth as much as anybody else. It makes me feel devalued as a human. I feel as if, it feels as a very, it feels like it's an uphill battle. And it feels as if you're not giving me the same respect as if you would give others. We also learned about another incident involving a student who was burned with a hot glue gun. Coming up at 5 o'clock in just one hour, we learn exactly what happened in that instance. We also sit down with the superintendent, and I share her message today in light of all this racial tension. But for now, reporting live in Ladue, Kelly Davis, News 4. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Good evening. I'm Lisa Hudson. Thanks for joining us tonight. We begin at Baylor, where hundreds of students walked with one of their peers to class this morning after a recent incident left that student feeling unsafe on campus. Channel 6 News reporter Amani Payne joins us now in studio with more. Amani. Lisa, an African-American student at Baylor claimed she was called a racial slur and pushed by a stranger while walking to class Wednesday. The alleged victim and others at the university gathered in a showing of unity this morning to say that kind of behavior won't thrive at Baylor. Baylor is a campus of love, and Baylor is a campus who watches out for each other. Baylor student Natasha Incoma fought back tears as she addressed hundreds of her peers and other Baylor faculty, staff, and alumni that gathered this morning to walk her to class. But it was more than just a friendly gesture. 
Earlier in the week, Natasha claims a complete stranger shoved her and called her the N-word on campus. She says the guy who did it said it was because he was trying to make America great again. Natasha shared her story on Twitter. It went viral and sparked the hashtag I walk with Natasha and this. Hey, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to stand with our sister. A halt in the day for a peaceful prayer and walk across campus to make sure Natasha made it to class safely and to ensure that other students wouldn't have to go through something similar. I teach here and I need every student that I teach to know that they are safe mm-hmm. and they are loved. I do hope that it'll create a safer campus. Um, But if it doesn't, um, the campus also knows that we stand with the marginalized. We stand with the other. Natasha says the showing of love and support from her university has been overwhelming. I didn't think anyone would take it that far or care at all, but I'm just really glad that there's people on campus who just have no tolerance for hate. Baylor is aware of the alleged incident and this morning's walk. They released a statement to Channel 6 News saying in part, the behavior is deeply disturbing and does not in any way reflect Baylor's faith or values. We wholeheartedly condemn the behavior. We have connected with the student and are working with her to ensure she feels safe and supported by the Baylor community. Some Baylor administrators who participated in the walk include the Vice President for Student Life and even the school's interim president, Dr. David Garland. Natasha says she doesn't recall what her alleged attacker looks like, other than that he was a white male. She hasn't filed a police report yet and isn't sure if she will because at this point she says she just wants to focus on the good and not the bad. And coming up tonight at 6, you'll hear, you'll hear more from Natasha and other Baylor students who say they're determined to make sure nothing so hateful will ever happen on their campus. So how's the college again. responding to this incident? We're having a, um, a race forum. And what's that? A forum on race so we can discuss the incident and the surrounding issues of race. So the usual lip service. Uh, no comment. Some parents are outraged about a Facebook post made by a local teacher. The parents call the post racist, and they are now calling for that teacher to be fired. WTVA's Cody Long spoke to the parents and the school leaders and has more. We have to do something. I mean, this cannot stand. We just can't. Very, very disappointed. Quote, the White House needs a good Clorox scrubbing. Some people have posted online saying it's hard to tell if it's actually racism. But Harold Parnell says after having the first African-American first family in Washington, it's clear what she meant. I, I've never seen Clorox make anything other than white. I hadn't. It, it's not rocket science on, on, on what the lady meant. So we're going to try to do what we can to make this situation um, better for all students. Parents and other community members join Thursday during the school board's executive session. But the school board is staying tight-lipped about it all. All the personnel policies will continue to be followed, and our superintendent has the um, authority to make pers- preliminary personnel decisions. The school board continues to tell us they will not comment on personnel matters. Meanwhile, the parents say their first instinct is to pull their children out of that teacher's class. In Starkville, Cody Long, WTVA 9 News. Between fa- you know, Facebook and Twitter, and I guess Instagram, I have 28 million people. 28 million so people. So you are going to keep it up. 
It's a great form of communication. Now, I, I do believe this. I really believe that um, the fact that I have such power in terms of numbers with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., I think it helped me win all of these races where they're spending much more money than I spent. You know, I spent my money, a lot of my money, and I won. I think that social media has more power than the money they spent, and I think maybe to a certain extent I proved that. We have some inside information on how Facebook works. Specifically, it's information about how Facebook regulates what you see, everything from hate speech to fake news stories and more. It's all in the news because of concerns that fake news stories may have influenced voters in last week's election. But it's been an issue for Facebook for quite some time. NPR's Arthi Shahani learned how Facebook does what it does, so we got her on the line for what is not a fake news story. Hi, how are you? So how big is this? How much bigger is this than just fake news? It's way bigger than fake news, and it's something that we're seeing over and over and over again with a different controversy of the moment. So, for example, over the summer, you'll recall there were these three high-profile shootings, right, against police officers and against two black men, one of whom bled to death on Facebook Live. Mm. At that point during the summer, employees in the company told me that users are flagging each other's posts left and right. That is, users can alert Facebook to a post and say, hey, this violates your rules. I want this taken down. The rules having to do with what's hate speech and what's not, what's decent and what's not, that sort of thing. Yeah, and not just hate speech, but, for example, what's nudity, what's sexist. It's actually quite strict. And then the question you sought to answer was, how do they actually enforce those rules, given the complexity of all the different kinds of things that are put online? What did you find? So Facebook's head of global policy, a woman named Monica Bickert, said that any time a post is flagged, her staff comes together and puts a lot of thought into the decisions about what stays up and what comes down, that they deeply consider the context of each post. She used that word over and over again to suggest we are really thoughtful and we stand by our decisions. So it sounds pretty good, but what did you find about what they actually do? The truth is... Facebook actually has an entire army of subcontractors out in Warsaw and uh, in Manila, the Philippines. And because of privacy laws as well as technical glitches, these subcontractors can't even see the entire post that they're looking at. And they're pressured to work at an extremely fast rate, about one post every 10 seconds. So the people who are supposed to be figuring this out and monitoring hate speech and other kinds of offensive speech have to decide in 10 seconds based on hardly any information. They have to decide quickly, and they are in a work environment that encourages them to go at lightning speed. Let's just say they have a regular shift at the rate of one post every 10 seconds. That means each person is clearing about 3,000 posts a day. That's very different from thoughtful, slow, and precise. Okay, so how well is it working? Well, you know, we ran a little experiment, right? We ended up flagging about 200 posts that could be considered hate speech against blacks and against whites. And what we found is that Facebook makes a whole lot of mistakes. For example, we flagged a post that calls for the killing of cops, and they totally missed that. It's a call to violence, and they said it was permissible speech. In dozens of instances, this happened, and Facebook had to change its mind on its decision. So lots of mistakes, you know, not a whole lot of confidence in the system. Does Facebook not really want to be in this business, not really want to be making editorial choices for their consumers? 
Well, you know, I think that they're ambivalent. Basically, Mark Zuckerberg at age 19 starts this company. He describes it as a technology company, just connecting people. Then he makes all these very strategic moves to make Facebook the thing through which you consume the news, the thing through which you have public discourse. And it also has to be a safe space where people don't feel threatened. So it's getting very, very messy. And he is clearly now the CEO of a media company. And it's not clear that he has the core competency for it. Arthi, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. That's NPR's Arthur Shahani. Now, Facebook spokesperson got back to us telling NPR that their subcontractors are put through rigorous quality controls. And as for that calculation of less than 10 seconds to examine each flagged post, Facebook disputes it, saying its employees' numbers are off, though the company did not offer its own numbers. You know, first ladies usually have a cause. And you've already said you're interested in speaking out against bullying on social media. I think it's very important because a lot of uh, children and teenagers are getting hurt and we need to teach them how to talk to each other, how to treat each other and uh, to, to be able to connect with each other on the right way. It's an ironic choice since her own husband sent out a stream of pretty nasty tweets during the campaign. I'm Marco Werman and this is The World. Thanks for being with us today. I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready to seriously limit my Facebook diet. The campaign seemed to ratchet up everyone's sharing of memes and news and fake news. No one seemed immune from it. And quite often the posts were from the choir for the choir. If you are still using social media, though, you've probably seen some items in your feed. Real news stories, it seems, about acts of hate and harassment or ethnic intimidation, as the Ann Arbor police referred to the harassment of a Muslim student at the University of Michigan last week. But are all the reports true and how much of this trend is new? The civil rights group, the Southern Poverty Law Center, is collecting some hard data, and Mark Potok is one of their senior fellows. So, Mark, how bad is it? What kind of change have we seen? Well, anecdotally, it's been kind of incredible. Uh, We put up a a forum on our website asking people to report these kinds of incidents to us, and we also began collecting simply uh, reports that were appearing in local media around the country, and we are already at 400 incidents. Uh, I have to say, you know, we have not verified all of these uh, independently at all. And it's true that there are apparently some fake stories out there. There's uh, apparently one of the women who said she had uh, her hijab ripped off, uh, was not telling the truth. But still, I think uh, it's indisputable that we're seeing a big rash uh, of hate crimes and hate incidents, kind of lesser crimes that are directly related to the election, to the election of uh, Donald Trump. So I mentioned Sadiq Muhammad, the student at the University of Michigan. That story was real. I got several sources on it. Um, But what other examples are there since last Tuesday that you have validated? Oh, I mean, there are so many, it's hard to say other than to characterize them. We've heard uh, lots and lots of reports of Muslim kids being bullied. We have heard reports of black people being attacked, of being screamed at, told to quote unquote, go back to Africa, that kind of thing. Similar things said to other foreigners. You know, we don't know exactly how this compares to prior periods. But I can say that on an anecdotal level, we haven't seen anything like this since the morning after Barack Obama was first elected as our first black president. Back then, we saw a similar rash of angry incidents and hate crimes across the country. President-elect Donald Trump has uh, kind of expressed shock by these incidents. He's called on people to knock it off, uh, that he wants to bind the wounds of division. What do you make of that? 
a day late and a dollar short. Uh, the man has spent uh, the better part of a year and a half doing precisely the opposite. You know, it's all very nice that Donald Trump uh, has become a no-hate guy opposed to violence, but it seems awfully late in the game. Women have also been targeted, if one is to believe even a fraction of some of the reports. Are women a new demographic for the Southern Poverty Law Center? Not that new. Uh, We began about four years ago to really write about organized misogyny. Uh, That's when we ran across a kind of underworld on the Internet, which is known as the Manosphere. These are actually organized groups that do things like recommend the quote-unquote corrective rape of women for being sort of uppity. I mean, they're really, it's an incredible world. So uh, it is true, I think, that misogyny is very much growing. Uh, It's very rife in the white supremacist movement. Uh, And, of course, Donald Trump, personally, as a candidate, has been accused of, of pretty loathsome misogyny on his own part. So it's hard to say how this trend will continue in the first months of a Trump presidency. But, I mean, how are you at the Southern Poverty Law Center preparing for the new administration? It's kind of all hands on deck here. Uh, We're getting an enormous number of phone calls and other contacts. There are uh, really huge numbers of people who want to do something. So, uh, you know, we're just dealing with all of that. We're trying to keep track of the uh, large number of hate crimes that have occurred in the last few days. You know, I would say, though, overall, I would expect this rash of hate crimes to diminish in the next couple of weeks. Uh, We certainly don't know that for sure. But a comparison, it seems to me, is with what happened in the United Kingdom immediately after the Brexit vote to leave the European Union. But what if that uh, trend doesn't cease here in the United States? You, you at the Southern Poverty Law Center will have a lot of work on your hands. That's right. I mean, if, that, if this trend doesn't stop, we are really in deep trouble. That was Mark Potok, senior fellow with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. And no, I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. You're the Welcome to Canada. You stupid? You stupid? Are you stupid? Are you stupid? It's not your fault. He's not from around these towns. I can tell by his face. You know what it is? These people think they have a right to assault us. I'm the racist. These people? I'm the racist. It's not these people. I'm the racist. Yeah, you're the racist. More than something. Back to your country. That's an altercation on a Toronto streetcar this week. It made headlines across the country. A white male passenger hurled racist insults at a man who appeared to have brown skin. Other passengers intervened, and the abusive man was asked to leave, but not before reportedly saying, Go Trump. The incident was caught on video for all to see. It was hardly the only example of hate in recent days or weeks. A school in Kanata, Ontario last week was vandalized with a swastika and KKK graffiti. In Abbotsford, B.C., this man's racist rant was caught on camera last month after he was issued a parking ticket. You Hindu? All you Hindu sh- camel rider mother You camel rider mother Go back to Hindi. White power mother Well, back in Toronto, Ian Daffern was walking his son to school this week when he spotted posters promoting the so-called alt-right. The thing that triggered me really quick was the words, the alt-right. I mean, I'd heard so much about that from the election in the States. I mean, this movement that is using racist politics to get popular support and that this is a racist poster. I want to rip this down because it just makes me so angry to see this kind of thing in my neighborhood or anywhere in Toronto. 
Well, the amount of hate speech being reported in the media appears to be on the rise. And with more than 100 white supremacist groups operating in Canada today, many fear the election of Donald Trump as U.S. president may embolden them all, especially if that's if what's happening now in the U.S. is any indication, with more than 300 racially charged incidents recorded by the Southern Poverty Law Centre since last Tuesday's election. For more of a sense of the Canadian situation, I'm joined by three guests. Desmond Cole is a freelance journalist and activist. Bernie Farber is the executive director of the Mosaic Institute. They're both with me in our Toronto studio. Barbara Perry is a professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. And she joins us from New Orleans today. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. And, uh, uh, Barbara Perry, I want to start with you. What do you think when you hear these examples of hate speech and, and these, these kinds of incidents in Canada? It's, it's really shocking wherever it happens, but I think it's, uh, it's especially um, notable that it does spill over uh, across the border. The border, of course, is so po- uh, porous when we're talking about the extension of this sort of uh, rhetoric. I mean, we were following, I think, the elections as closely as many Americans, so um, not at all surprised that it has infected us uh, in, in much the same way. And, uh, you know, sorry to say, I mean, the, the virulence of the, uh, the attacks uh, in the language and the emotion that was embedded in that language is just uh, terrifying. I can't imagine the, the folks uh, that were targeted, how they must have felt. But in, in terms of what we're seeing pouring over into the border, I think we have to have some reference points here. Canada wasn't always the clean-cut you know, cousin of, of the Americans. We've had our um, foray with racist and bigots, neo-Nazis, and we still have to this day our foray. I think what has happened at this point sad to say, is that uh, uh, Trump has given permission for uh, the racists and the crumb bums who've been hiding in garbage cans to pop their heads up and say, look, wow, fresh air here, time to, time to get busy, dust themselves off, and off they go. So it's not new. It's just uh, a shot of adrenaline for them. Desmond Cole, how do you see it? I think Bernie has just made a really important point because uh, – Trump might be giving permission for these things to happen in a, in a maybe more public way now, but we see them all the time. You know, the threshold of what it takes to get on the news is quite high. This incident on the streetcar was videotaped. If it was just a personal account, we would never have heard about it, but people experience these things riding to work, going to pick up their children, in, in conversations with their colleagues. People experience this kind of racism every single day. But I think we should also think about things like what happened when Rob Ford was running for election in 2014 and how many candidates, uh, Muslim candidates, particularly women who wear hijab, were targeted in their own neighborhoods, signs being torn down, volunteers being told to go back to their country. Um, in fact, in one case with, um, with um, Asma Malik, she had to actually have protection to go to debates because there were people putting up posters in her neighborhood saying that... Uh, you know, she was a part of a terrorist organization and they were targeting her. This happens in our city all the time. I remember after the attacks in Paris, we saw a huge spike in attacks against Muslim people. A Peterborough mosque was firebombed. You know, uh, women going to pick up their children from school were attacked in the city. This is not new, as Bernie says, and it's not simply inspired by what's happening in the United States. And then we have some kind of copycat effect here. The same sentiments of white resentment that Donald Trump fed on in order to win his election are present here. Barbara Perry, you are tracking um, white nationalist groups here in Canada. Who are they? How, ma- how many? 
Well, um, from the research that we were we did really in 2013-2014, um, we were able to identify at that time, sort of by triangulating from multiple sources, um, probably over 100 active groups. And, and again, that's probably a dramatic uh, underrepresentation. Um, and, you know, that ranged uh, small small cells, if you will, of uh, what some people refer to as three-man wrecking crews, uh, up to groups that were, uh, you know, uh, several dozen into the, uh, into the hundreds. Uh, as well, and, and uh, sort of clustered in particular areas, skinhead movement very strong in Montreal, uh, and then more traditional neo-Nazi um, groups in uh, Western Ontario, Southern Alberta, and Southern BC uh, as well. Um, and sources close to the ground, if you will, uh, former ad adherents that we're in touch with, um, suggest that there has been a bit of an, uh, an uptick uh, in some of these areas, again, in the last year or so. Um, and again, whether that's related to, to Trump or not. Well, when you say uptick, does that mean more people are joining these groups? Because I'm wondering how mainstream it is. And, and you know, people, not everybody who who is, is uh, going to do what Desmond is describing is going to belong, like identify as a member of a white supremacist group, ergo, they're not so bad. Like, so how do we how do we look at what you're finding yeah, and that's a that's a really good point because um, you know very very little of the hate crime that we see is actually perpetrated by uh, adherents. It's you know estimates have it at five ten percent uh, at best or at worst perhaps. Um, so, so what are they doing? What are the adherents doing? Uh, various kinds of, of violence. Uh, some of it is you know just outright criminal violence. Some of it is hate hate motivated. Um, you know where after typically after a night of drinking off they go to find someone who is not like them, someone who has brown skin typically um, to bash, or they'll go you know down near a gay club or a gay village uh, and uh, and bash there. Um, so they are engaging in hate crime. It's, they just don't account for uh, for the the bulk of it. Um, but you know we are absolutely seeing spikes in. Um, in violence directed towards people who are, especially those perceived to be Muslim uh, or, or Middle Eastern, as uh, our other two guests have, have suggested, um, and very much tied into um, you know, the, the reaction to immigration and especially you know, refugees, um, reaction to the processes of, of globalization and, and how they see that that has uh, re resulted in a loss of privilege uh, and in fact, they would they would argue a disadvantage for for white people. The, I was looking at the Toronto uh, white people signs and and the references there to uh, you know loss of, of of those those privileges. Desmond wants to say something. It's I agree, but I think that rather than framing this as privilege, we have to talk about it more as a loss of power and dominance. Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to Pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. I agree, but I think that rather than framing this as privilege, we have to talk about it more as a loss of power and dominance. That's what people are upset about. This idea that uh, they were just born with some imaginary and kind of indescribable privilege is not the truth. They're born with power. And, and their ability to dominate other people because of identity. And that's what's slipping away from them. And, you know, in terms of addressing that, I find it interesting that that poster that was found was calling out directly to white people and saying, hey, white people, do you feel like this? Do you feel like that? And I find that so interesting, particularly because in the responses to that, people are afraid to do the same thing. 
white people who see this and are horrified by it are nevertheless, I think, very uncomfortable with calling out whiteness and talking to other white people and saying, hey, we as white people need to address this problem. It can't always be folks like myself who are being asked while we are being targeted with hatred to then go out and respond and petition and ask for fairness and ask for better. We we can't do that. White Mm -hmm. people who are alarmed by these things need to take these conversations internally and start talking to their peers. Georgia. During the Jim Crow period, you could not find an area that was more segregated than Forsyth County in Georgia. Two criminal cases ignited the divide even further when violent mobs known as Night Riders drove all 1,100 black residents out of the county. When Donald Trump won the U.S. presidential election last week, he defied expectations by winning support from large numbers of white women and working-class voters, especially in once-Democrat strongholds. But for all the talk of his working-class support, there was another issue on which this election was fought, and that was race and immigration. So how will those on opposite sides of the divide in America move forward? Ali McBool reports from Georgia. It's not all about working-class men. In the affluent streets of Forsyth County, with its vast, column-fronted homes, others are celebrating a Trump victory too. I love the fact that he's not politically correct. I love the fact that he's upfront, honest, says it like it is, shoots from the hip. I love the fact that he really does want to take care of our American people. Darcy Butkus said she felt Donald Trump was the first politician in her lifetime to really represent her views. I don't want to be in the minority. This is America. And when you go down to South Florida, I'm sorry, whether it's Fort Lauderdale or Miami, I'm going to say it like it is. There's a lot of different ethnic groups, and I felt like I was in the minority. Darcy, in fact, moved to this part of Georgia because it was mainly white. I think that he's exacerbating issues of sexism and racism. A world away in diverse Manhattan lives Darcy's daughter, Rachel. I haven't even said the sentence out loud that Trump will be our... No. I can't. It's it's so difficult that he's going to be our president. Rachel was a Clinton supporter whose relationship with her mother has been strained because of the election, particularly their very different outlooks on multiculturalism. I love learning about different cultures and their languages and their food and, and everything in that realm. And I think for her, she felt what a lot of Trump supporters feel. They're they're not speaking our language. They, they don't love America like we do. Rachel worries Trump's victory will inspire more bigotry from those who voted for him. People feel we're the majority and we're going to say what we think is right and we felt suppressed and, and now let's make America great again. This bruising election exposed deep divisions in American society, even within families, especially around the issues of race, diversity and immigration. How the two sides now come together is one of the biggest challenges this country faces. Ali McBool in Georgia. Tears and a smile. For many across America, the presidential election has left them distraught, awash with anxiety, fear and dread. It seems surreal. 
a candidate caught on tape saying what he said who launched a pernicious hate campaign directed at Mexicans and Muslims, a man who seemed to embody a sense of doom. And yet, and yet, Donald Trump has snatched the brass ring, the prize of prizes of politics, his first and only political race and victory. By doing so, he has made U.S. political history. For good or ill, this election may transform American politics. It would be accurate to say that economic discontent played a part, the result of the Clinton-era NAFTA pact for the North American Free Trade Agreement. But that's not all. The Trump campaign represented not just fear, but profound paranoia, and also white revenge for the darkening of America. If Trumpism represented vengeance, then Clintonism represented betrayal. For every constituency that voted for Bill Clinton, gays, blacks, you name it. The Clintons supported bills like DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, the AEDPA, an anti-habeas corpus bill, or NAFTA, despite massive labor support, all built on betraying their interests. But these are indeed dark days in Babylon, the politics of vengeance versus the politics of betrayal. That's quite a choice, isn't it? A smile? Yes. For this too shall pass. From imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Pray! This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. The National Rifle Association was one of Donald Trump's biggest supporters during his campaign. It spent millions of dollars on ads for the president-elect and rallied gun owners to get out and vote. Now, with Trump headed to the White House and Congress still under Republican control, the NRA is looking beyond just holding ground in the Second Amendment debate. As NPR's Nathan Rott reports, the group is hoping to expand gun rights. It was either going to be a call to action or a celebration. 1,000 men and women from around the country all gathered in the Arizona desert north of Phoenix. Shooters, please pick up and shoulder your rifles. To shoot 1,000 Henry Golden Boy silver rifles at the same time. Move the lever completely forward. Move the lever completely back. The timing of the NRA-sponsored event a week after the election was no accident. Take aim. They wanted people to hear them shoot. Fire. NRA First Vice President Pete Brownell told the gathered crowd of gun owners and enthusiasts that this was their second shot heard around America and the world. The first shot came a week earlier. We prove that when gun rights are challenged, Americans stand up to answer freedom's call by electing Donald J. Trump to our next president of the United States. Right. By electing Trump, gun rights groups like the NRA are saying that the tide has shifted in terms of the national debate over guns and how or even whether to regulate them. I have to tell you, it feels great to be on offense again. What exactly that offense will look like is starting to take shape. NRA President Wayne LaPierre put out a video this week in which he lists a few things the NRA wants to see done. First and foremost is the appointing of a conservative pro-gun Supreme Court justice. Make no mistake. That will be a generational victory for Second Amendment freedom. 
Next, the NRA and gun rights groups want to see an end to gun-free zones on military bases, the loosening of restrictions on suppressors or silencers, and the biggest prize, a national reciprocity for concealed carry permits. That would allow a concealed carry permit holder in a state like Texas to carry their gun in a state like New York, regardless of New York's laws. The idea being, as Trump himself has said, that concealed carry is a right, not a privilege. This is the number one item on the NRA's agenda. This is Adam Winkler, a constitutional law professor at the UCLA School of Law and author of Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America. He says a broader version of reciprocity would allow someone to go out of state to get a concealed carry permit, say from a restrictive state like California to a looser one like Utah. Then their home state, in this case California, would have to honor that permit. Winkler says the NRA likely wants that version of reciprocity, but he says there could be pushback, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans who champion states' rights. If you believe in any local autonomy, as Republicans claim to believe in, then the broad version of reciprocity undermines that significantly. That being said, I think there's a very strong likelihood that national reciprocity will be pushed forward in the Trump administration, possibly very quickly. But that is no sure thing. Because there's uncertainty about what Trump will actually do, even among people who voted for him and attended the NRA's Phoenix shooting event. Mine was more a vote against than a vote for, and now I'm, like, cautiously optimistic. When we live in a country with 330 or 40 million people and we only got what we got running for president, we have a problem in America. I don't trust him. I'll keep an eye on him, and I think everybody else is, too. That was Michelle Camp, Roger Porter, and Sharon Callan, all voted for Trump because of guns, all want to see national reciprocity enacted and other gun laws loosened, and all are wary but hopeful. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Last week, California voters passed Proposition 64. Most of the attention has centered on how adults can now legally consume recreational marijuana, but that is not all this new law does. Proposition 64 also allows for reducing some prison sentences and clearing old criminal records related to pot. For more on what this means for the state and the people living in it, we turn now to KPCC's Jacob Margolis, who's been producing Take Two special coverage of Prop 64. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Alex. Remind us what specifically did Proposition 64 say about people who had previously broken the laws governing marijuana? Yeah, so one of the main features of Prop 64 was that it was meant to largely decriminalize pot as well as lessen the sentences around it and around marijuana-related crimes. So some felonies turn into misdemeanors and some misdemeanors can be wiped from the record. You know, this depends on how the law around a certain crime was changed after Prop 64 went into place. So, for instance, um, possession with intent to sell, it used to be a felony. Now it's a misdemeanor. Now it's basically treated as uh, selling without a license, essentially. And the state will be issuing licenses uh, later this year or early next year. And all these changes went into effect on midnight on election night. I can only imagine that the very next day, uh, lawyers who deal in this sort of thing were flooded with calls. Jacob, I know you've been talking with some of these attorneys. What have they said? Yeah, they're excited. You know, it means a lot more business for them and they're getting a ton of calls. And in court, they said that they've seen that 
cases have already started to be bumped down to misdemeanors from felonies. So I asked them for some examples. Eric Shevin, for instance, he's an attorney. He specializes in cannabis laws. He's had a case with a client that goes back to August. He says that this client was transporting medical cannabis from northern to southern California, and his client was pulled over. Allegedly, the smell of cannabis led to a search, and they found the 50 pounds. He was arrested, taken to jail, bailed out on $100,000. The case was filed as a felony transportation of cannabis case. Alex, so 50 pounds, 50 pounds, 50 pounds of pot. I mean, pot. that could mean a felony, four years in prison. As of a little over a week ago, Shevin says that they pushed to delay the case again and again, hoping that Prop 64 would pass. And of course it did. You know, I spoke to him yesterday about it. Today was the day and we were in court and the case was actually reduced to a misdemeanor. And he's, of course, excited. So there are tremendous benefits to facing misdemeanor charges versus felonies. I mean, the most obvious one is that the penalties are so much less that instead of a maximum of four years in prison, the maximum is six months in the county jail. Jacob, who all do these new modifications in, in criminal records and sentencing apply to? Is there anyone who might not be looking at a reduced conviction? Yeah, so there are some limitations. If someone has two prior convictions for the same crime, then it becomes something called a wobbler, which means that the charges can be filed as misdemeanors or felonies. Uh, the same thing applies to someone if they're a sex offender. It could become a wobbler charge. On top of that, some of the previous felonies are still felonies now, so they won't be lessened. For instance, people convicted of selling to minors aren't eligible under the new law. Because that's still illegal. You've got to be an adult. That is still a felony under the new law. Butane extraction is still a felony too. And to explain what that is, it's basically where people use butane, which is an explosive solvent, to extract psychoactive chemicals from marijuana. It's the hash oil stuff, yeah. It's very dangerous, and it's led to a lot of explosions in apartment buildings and such. Jacob, do you have any sense of how many people might actually see a reduction in their sentence or have their convictions wiped from their past records? So these numbers, they're really tough to come by because of the ways that different counties keep track of who's arrested and imprisoned specifically for pot-related crimes. A lot of the time, they're not tracked on a very granular level. But the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a pro-marijuana anti-criminalization organization. They were behind Prop 64. They say that there are about 11,000 felony arrests for marijuana-related crimes each year. But remember, these law changes actually can impact everyone ever convicted of a marijuana-related crime ever in the state of California. And that's a, a long time. Obviously, Jacob, for people whose sentences are reduced, they might get their freedom earlier if they're in prison now. What about for those who've had their records cleared? What is the bigger influence of something like that in someone's life? It, it's major. I mean, I, I want to talk about one woman I spoke with. Her name's Ingrid Archie. She's a mother of two. And for her, 2004 was a very rough year. I was living, you know, in South Los Angeles at the time, and I had um, let a friend live with me. Basically, the police was looking for that for them, and they came into my house and searched my house looking for them, and they found the marijuana. And so I went to jail because I was in the house, and um, I was already on probation for a prior charge. So the police found little baggies filled with pot. She pled guilty to possession with intent to sell, which was a felony in California. And that had a huge impact on her life. Because what it is, is when you go for, like, applications on jobs or housing, 
or pretty much anything. They do a seven to ten year background check. So with a felony drug charge on your record, she told me it can be tough to get housing assistance. And of course, jobs can be tough to get too. I applied everywhere and all I got was no, 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 no for years. So I gave up. So the night that the law passed, she filled out a petition to have her conviction lessened to a misdemeanor, and it is likely that her felony will be reduced to a misdemeanor. We're speaking with Jacob Margolis about the legal implications of the passage of Prop 64. Jacob, how is California's court systems handling what will likely be just an absolutely huge deluge of requests? So I have calls into the Superior Court in Los Angeles and the District Attorney's Office in L.A. The DA's office sent me a document that instructs their employees on how to handle these cases now. I'm still waiting to hear back from the court, but people I did talk to think that it may take some time for all of this to trickle down. For instance, Attorney Bruce Margolin, who handles cannabis-related cases. They don't know what's going on. They say, duh, they don't know what's going on. It's like deer with headlights on them. So multiple lawyers I spoke with said very similar things, and it might just take a little time before everybody knows exactly what's going on, because the law isn't straightforward. It's not, it is a little complicated. Well, let's try. Let's do our small part here to keep uh, the workload at the courthouse down. For people who don't want to wind up going to court or going to jail in the future, remind us what the new laws are when it comes to possession and cultivation of recreational pot. Yeah, so people can now carry up to an ounce of marijuana on them. They can also grow up to six plants on their private premises. Any more than that, and you can be fined and potentially charged with a misdemeanor. So that part is pretty straightforward. The other stuff is a little complicated. If people are curious, uh, I've been recommended to tell people to call an attorney. (laughs) That's KPCC's Jacob Margolis. Jacob, thank you. Thanks, Alex. 2016 officially sucks. Today we learned that Gwen Ifill, the consummate professional who was most recently host of Washington Week on PBS, died at the age of 61. She'd been on a leave of absence and her voice was solely missed during this most recent election season, quite obviously. She was a true legend in the field of journalism and a tremendous source of pride for the black community as well. Around the industry, feelings poured out for her across the internet. She'll be remembered as gracious, kind, brilliant, and thorough. When she moderated vice presidential debates, she was excellent. Part of me is distressed, not just because we've lost her, but she is genuinely irreplaceable. Eiffel was the kind of person that made you want to be better at your job. Her reputation was infallible, and beyond that, people actually liked her. Look, fans, colleagues, and other journalists alike will all be in shock for some time over this one. Eiffel was the best of us. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. Our lead tonight is news that we hoped we would never have to report. Our managing editor, my co-anchor, and dear friend Gwen Eiffel died earlier today after an almost year-long battle with cancer. She was a supernova in a profession loaded with smart and talented people. So it's no surprise that messages of condolence have flooded in all afternoon from across the journalism and political spectrum. President Obama said this at the White House. Michelle and I want to offer our deepest condolences to Gwen Eiffel's family uh, and all of you her colleagues uh, on her passing. Uh, Gwen was a friend of ours. She was an extraordinary journalist. She always kept faith with the fundamental responsibilities of her profession, asking tough questions, holding people in power accountable, and defending a strong and free press that makes our democracy work. Uh, I always appreciated Gwen's reporting, even when I was at the receiving end of one of her tough and thorough interviews. Uh, Whether she reported from a convention floor or from the field, Whether she sat at the debate moderator's table or at the anchor's desk, 
She not only informed today's citizens, but she also inspired tomorrow's journalists. She was an especially powerful role model for young women and girls who admired her integrity, her tenacity, and her intellect, and for whom she blazed a trail as one half of the first all-female anchor team on network news. So Gwen did her country a great service. Michelle and I join her family and her colleagues and everybody else who loved her in remembering her fondly today. President Obama today at the White House. We're devoting most of tonight's show to Gwen, and we start with this look at her remarkable life. Good evening, I'm Gwen Ifill. And, and with those words, each evening, Americans knew they were in good hands, Gwen Ifill's hands. She was the heart and soul of PBS's NewsHour and Washington Week. She was also beloved, sister, aunt, godmother many times over, and friend to legions. The daughter of a minister, Gwen graduated from Simmons College in Massachusetts, got her start in journalism at the Boston Herald American, before moving on to the Baltimore Evening Sun in 1981, then to the Washington Post, followed by several years as a politics reporter and White House correspondent for the New York Times. Even marginal progress could be affected by investigations in Little Rock and in Washington. She moved to television and NBC News in 1994. They have to find a way to work with this president for the next two years. Tom. NBC's Gwen Ifill on Capitol Hill tonight. Then, in October 1999, she came to PBS to host Washington Week, the long-running political roundtable. Good evening. And to become senior correspondent on the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer. And to our new senior correspondent, Gwen Ifill. Welcome, Gwen. Thanks, Jim. For a preview of the Supreme Court's 1999 term, how would you prioritize the needs at the border right now? As there, she added to her lengthy and accomplished body of work. In 2013, Gwen and I were honored to assume the great responsibility and joy of co-anchoring this program. Good evening, I'm Judy Woodruff. And I'm Gwen Eiffel. Those are just some of the stories we're covering on tonight's PBS NewsHour. On this, the first night of the new PBS NewsHour, we have a lot of news for you. We also have a new look, but Judy and I will be bringing you the news and analysis you've come to trust. And it was that trust, her dedication, that was her stock in trade. She was the gold standard in our business, known for a fierce allegiance and loyalty to her family, friends, and colleagues, but also to the facts. Her range was limitless. Here are some highlights. How do we as a nation cope with race, conflict, and our inability to see each other? this on its head. Because when we talk about race in this country, we always talk about African Americans, people of color. I want to talk to you about white people. Okay? White people. Why don't you mention Donald Trump by name? You know, uh, he seems to do a good job mentioning his own name. So uh, I figure, you know, I'll let him do his advertising for him. Susana Flores, the owner, is a legal resident who tried unsuccessfully to teach me how to make tortillas. <laughs> Susana's sister, Rosina Sandoval, who works as a waitress, is not here legally. She could easily be deported. 
Gwen is in Des Moines for Iowa State Fair. This weekend, the political yin and yang of a crowded field all descended on Iowa at once and brought it into a specially sharp focus. The American people are growing extremely unhappy with establishment politics, with establishment economics, and you know what else? What? Even with establishment media. No. Yeah. I think every single conversation we've had with a Republican in this booth, when we asked them about these issues, they've always turned it back to talking about Hillary Clinton. Right. And that, that does seem to be the most, per, the most persuasive argument, David, that Republicans in this room have. Can you see a scenario right now in which he would step back from the border at all in a way that you can trust? Well, I think you, you've asked exactly the right question, uh, as you often do, Gwen. NBC's Gwen Eiffel has our in-depth report. Even marginal progress could be affected by investigations in Little Rock and in Washington involving the president, the first lady, and their political supporters. Fifty years later, though, if King were able to stand in that spot and look out, what is the legacy of that day that uh, some people say we have a black president, everything's much better, and some people say we have so much farther to go? Gwen raised questions others wouldn't or that wouldn't even occur to them. Here's one example from the vice presidential debate she moderated in 2004. I want to talk to you about AIDS, and not about AIDS in China or Africa, but AIDS right here in this country, where black women between the ages of 25 and 44 are 13 times more likely to die of the disease than their counterparts. What should the government's role be in helping to end the growth of this epidemic? Four years later, she sat down with another set of candidates. Welcome to the first and the only 2008 vice presidential debate. Throughout that 2008 campaign, Gwen was not only reporting for the NewsHour and Washington Week, she was writing about that moment in history. As the nation's first African-American president was elected, she marked it with the breakthrough, the story of a new generation of black politicians. But it was not just politics that moved her. It's a daily operation. This is fun. Now, this is the way I always wanted to do the news hour. Have a little fun. I woke up one day and the whole world was singing Banana Boat, and I really didn't understand how powerful I was until I stood before an audience of 50,000 Japanese trying to sing Dale. <laughs> I just said, yay, uh, I've arrived. Well, I, I would say you, you managed over the years to, to sing your song. Gwen's spirit, nourished by her connection to her church, was on full display when she sat down with Aretha Franklin just one year ago tomorrow. So as part of you, you know, always going to be Reverend C.L. Franklin's daughter? Absolutely. I'm a preacher's kid, too. So Are I, you? You're a PK. I, okay. I am a PK, uh -huh. but I don't sing quite like you. Oh, well, we don't all sing. <laughs> we have other gifts. Yes, you have other gifts. Indeed, she did. Absolutely. One of her last stories was about the yep. new what National Museum of African American History and Culture. This is an amazing place, chock full of the expected and the unexpected. Recently, Gwen talked about her love for the news hour and what it means in today's world. We occupy a role that we know they appreciate. They tell us this. And it's, it's not too much to tell them back how much we love them back. There is, um, the world is split into a million different little ways of consuming your information. A lot of young people say, I get my information from The Daily Show. Or a lot of young people say, I only read what I see on my phone browser. 
But we have a dedicated, uh, committed audience who want to know more, who want us to dig a little deeper on their behalf. And so if they weren't there, if they weren't supporting the work we do, we couldn't exist. And I think it's kind of vital to democracy that we do exist. We are joined now by some who knew Gwen well. Charlene Hunter-Galt, a colleague and friend of Gwen's and a longtime member of our NewsHour family. John Dickerson of CBS News, also a regular panelist and occasional host for Washington Week. Kevin Merida, a longtime colleague and now with the website ESPN's Undefeated. And Amy Walter, also of our NewsHour and Washington Week families. She's with the Cook Political Report. This is a tough night for all of us. Um, Kevin Merida, you talked about meeting Gwen early on and what a, what a, I think you said unicorn, how rare it was to see an African-American journalist succeeding as early as she did. She told me the story, and I'm, I assume she told you, about first time at the Boston uh, newspaper, what happened to her. Do you remember that story? You know, I, I remember there were some, I, I don't remember the specifics, but she was in Boston. We were both in Boston at the same time. It was a really racially tense city then. Uh, I had been an intern at the Boston Globe, and anybody who worked at Boston newspapers back in that day, and you were African-American, many times you you felt like you were kind of uh, under this this racial, almost racial terror sometimes, and it was really difficult to, to do the job. The fact that she was able to be in the newsroom reporting in Boston at that time was extraordinary in and of itself. Um, and I, I think she was always one that in each level of her career, there were never obstacles that she was going to allow to block her. And, and that kind of professionalism and the, the ability to wear success well uh, was awfully inspiring as, as we both watched each generation, you know, new new young journalists come up look, and look toward her for that model. Charlene, Judy, I remember what the incident was because I was uh, speaking at one of the many award ceremonies Gwen was being honored, and I looked it up, and a coworker had written to her in word, "Go home." Right. And right. she had to survive that and and prosper and not pay a lot of attention to it. At the same time, let me very quickly say that while you and Ju you and uh, Gwen were noted for becoming the first two women to anchor a news program, you know, Gwen identified as a woman, she identified as an African American, and she identified as a human being. So she brought all of those things to bear in becoming one of the many consciences of the news business and the news hour. I mean, she championed uh, uh, my series, Race Matters, looking at solutions to uh, racism. Uh, she used to send me little notes encouraging me. So she could be all of those things and still reach out in a universal way to people regardless of race, creed, color, or national origin. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday. November 19th, 2016. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have observations, uh, comments you would like to share, thoughts on the news clips we just heard. The number to dial is 
four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Certainly, uh, our condolences. Gwen Eiffel, again, the importance, monumental importance of black journalists. Uh, and if I may have a quick moment, I think uh, we've had so many people who have passed away this year, certainly starting uh, with uh, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, Prince, Dr. Asada Shakur, I certainly <clears throat> cannot name them all. Uh, it's it's just been so many black people uh, who have tried as best they could to do something uh, constructive. And a lot of these people directly uh, addressing, dealing with racism, white supremacy. But for Gwen Eiffel uh, to die 61 years old uh, and the experience that one of her colleagues was able to share uh, at, uh, during that PBS segment about the terrorism that she endured on the job. I almost saved that snippet until workplace racism on Thursday. I was just going to play a little bit about some of uh, Gwen Eiffel's uh, history and some of her accomplishments and what have you and some of the uh, thoughts that she shared on racism. But I thought that that piece at the end, I thought was so profound. It was so important and in my opinion directly indirectly uh in some measure contributing a contributing factor as to why Gwen Eiffel is no longer with us at the age of 61 I think that too I think we talked before about things being naturalized violence uh black anti-blackness being normalized black people smoking cigarettes being normalized black people being in conflict with each other being normalized Black people dying at a very young age also gets normalized. And that's how we should think of a black person dying at 60, 61. That is absurd. Product of the system of white supremacy. A couple other things I wanted to make sure I touched on uh, before we proceeded. I was not aware, not as aware as I should have been uh, of the NRA's push support uh, of Donald Trump. I saw a few things after the election, but I didn't really see as much uh, before the election, that is noteworthy, uh, in my opinion, uh, hearing that this week, I, my, my attention perked up. Uh, there also was a very interesting report. Now, this started uh, at the L.A. Times. I posted it uh, on my Facebook page. You can follow us, Twitter, at Intel Justice. You can follow the Facebook page, the different cows groups, keep up uh, with the program and my other thoughts on racism. Uh, but there was an article in the LA Times, and it was talking about all of these uh, different terms that race soldiers have come up with over the past uh, year or so during the presidential uh, campaign, basically, in response to uh, the presidential campaign. And they were saying, uh, they were defining some of these terms, right, trying to explain uh, where these terms came from, what do they mean, why have they been incorporated uh, into the lexicon of Trump's followers. That's mostly who they were focused on. So the article from the LA Times, it's called Cuck, and that's C-U-C-K, Snowflake, 
Masculinist, a guide to the language of the alt-right. And so this is this network of whites uh, who had said they did a lot of campaign work for President-elect Donald Trump. Uh, they did a lot of different articles about them over the last reports and what have you on their organizational organizational effort uh, during the presidential campaign. So within that article, as they are explaining the term cuck, they have a link, because uh, this term has been used for at least a few months or so, uh, but they have a different article at GQ magazine, Why Angry White Men Love Calling People Cucks. Wellsing moment all over this. Uh, within that art- article, they explain the connection, uh, what the term cuck means, why these white Trump supporters have been using this term, its connection uh, to the concept of a cuckold. I guess I could ring the cowbell there as well. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating, fascinating, particularly uh, for uh, attempted counter-racists uh, who recognize the importance of words, words that are being used, particularly words that are being used around racism, white supremacy, and even whites showing their frustration with how other white people are behaving fascinating piece you should probably check out uh both of them the la times piece cuck snowflake masculinist a guide to the language of the alt-right and then the gq piece uh is linked in that la times report is why angry white men love calling people cucks again the enormity of not having dr wilson with us to get her thoughts on all of this Uh, With that, I will hush. Uh, If you have commentary, feel free. If you could take five minutes to share whatever observations, thoughts that you have, uh, and then allow other people to share. That way we'll make sure everybody gets an opportunity to speak again just exclusively for this call, the compensatory call-in. If we could not use metaphors, uh, I've stated consistently that uh, I think when discussing white supremacy, racism, uh, often whites, they will deliberately use metaphors and analogies, make comparisons between things that are not equivalent. Uh, They will do this to generate confusion, uh, misunderstanding. Uh, Non-white people, victims of white supremacy, I think a lot of us, we do this in our confusion about racism, white supremacy. We get contaminated, confused about racism uh, and how to articulate views on racism by whites as well. Uh, And I think a lot of times, just in trying to to grasp and and come to some solid understanding of racism, I think sometimes we just use analogies, metaphors, and trying to express our views, hoping that it comes across accurately in what we mean to say. And I've just found that often that is not the case, uh, that it just generates a lot of confusion. So if we could just be direct, explicit, no metaphors, greatly appreciated i will prompt about that and even watch myself to make sure that i'm not doing that as well uh the number again 641-715-3640 the code is 564-943-POUND press star six if you would like to participate once again We will be here in about 12 hours. We'll be back uh, tomorrow for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, It's 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, Tune in. We'll be great. Very excited to hear our international listeners' perspective on the election and what has taken place since then. Make sure I get my reminder in about that. Anywho, folks that dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to participate.
Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, greetings, guests, and to the rest of the callers. So I heard in one of the audios that uh, that there was a school that did that walked out of class to protest, and I connected that to the one that we did at Open School for the Arts, and it was, well, my, ours was pretty powerful, and it, we really related to it, and we actually got to say what we had to say. The mayor came to to our protest. Well, it wasn't a protest. It was just more of a walkout, and, yeah, it was just, it was pretty powerful, and the mayor was there, and there was some conflict. There were some people that kept conflicting with the actual problem, bringing up different discussions and whatever, just just messing with us and just getting off of the topic of what we were talking about, which was Donald Trump's election. And, yeah, like I said, it was pretty powerful. But um, just something I saw off of social media, I saw th- this one post about this one Alabama school board operator, school a person from the school board of of an Alabama school, he went to a Black Lives Matter protest, blackface. And I found that pretty interesting because he actually, as I saw it, he was wearing a straw hat, uh, a straw hat, torn up clothes, and just painted his face and his whole body just black, just like black. And it was just... I mean, I yes, I found it offensive, but then again, I knew I expected it because I mean, we live in a world of white supremacy, so we we should already know what's happening. But I just found it interesting because you didn't have to go around doing all that. You could have just came as yourself. I mean, some people will find that offensive that you wear blackface, and it's just it's I don't find it cruel, but I just find it interesting to talk about and. Another thing I saw off of social media was this one white white woman, I think she was in her early 20s, she kept saying that she hated black people and she wanted to start a plague that would just get rid of all black people and make them go away. She kept complaining that you would lose them in the dark and they eat all of your chicken and it's just, just buffoonery. And at the end of her video, she said, there you go. I hate black people, but I'm not racist. And I actually was pretty confused there because that's like me saying I shot someone in the head and slit their throat, but I didn't kill them. It's just total nonsense. And the whole world is just messed up. And it's just too much going on, just too much stuff. But I'm still living through it, and I'm expecting it as we go. That's all I wanted to share. Thank you for taking my call. Hmm. Fascinating. Our uh, young scholar uh, in the Bay Area just uh, had a fantastic uh, grading period, uh, got all the A's you could possibly get, phenomenal work uh, from our young black scholar in the Bay Area. I guess with the protest uh, situation, one, I'm glad uh, to hear anytime I hear a non-white person, particularly a young black person saying that they are not surprised about racism phenomenal making great progress uh, or i guess i'll be three things so that was one 
The second thing, the report that you read about the uh, blackface, if folks didn't see it, I'm going to post it on our Facebook page. Uh, the Daily Mail school official donned blackface and a Black Lives Matter sign for Halloween, and no one can punish him. Uh, so that came out this week as well. They have photographs of exactly what he said with him with his overalls and whole body and blackface and everything. And they think that this is... Uh, or I guess he specifically thinks that this is great that he did this and people allegedly were very upset about it and nothing can be done about this. No punishment, no nothing. That seems very common. The last thing with the protest that you all had out in your area, what exactly were you all protesting about Trump? Uh, we were protesting the things that he planned on doing. He, we kept saying that he's not our president and he can't do anything to us because we will have our voices heard as teen, as young teenagers of Oakland, California. That's basically what we can't rant, what we kept rant, ranting about. I see. Okay. Um, were there uh, white people participating in the protest? White students, even? Or? Oh yes, there were there were white people, and there was just a lot of there were white people there, but there was a lot of diversity through it. Most people from OSA actually went just the high schoolers but um yeah it, there were white people there there were white people okay that's even great for uh since you're in the bay area i can i can go this is very very similar i said at the beginning of the year that this everything about this period reminds me of about exactly what happened in this part of the world 50 years ago uh where you had a lot of black people that's the 50 year anniversary of the black panther party right in your neck of the woods they elected uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, he did a lot of rhetoric about law and order, which is Donald Trump stole those lines explicitly uh, during his campaign this year. Uh, that also a big part of that was that you had a lot of whites who came out to say that they didn't support Richard Nixon and down with the establishment. And particularly in your area, you can go back that lots and lots of images came right out of where you are. Berkeley, California is right up the road from you. You could probably go and do some great research uh, at Cal Berkeley about what was happening because what was going on in 1966, 1968, that is exactly what's happening now. And I would just say uh, it's phenomenal uh, being so active and paying attention to things and not being surprised about racism. You are way ahead of where I was in terms of my understanding when I was your age, probably even <laughs> much further, much older than that. Just continue uh, learning. But be very suspicious. Be very careful uh, if you're out at a protest or something like that uh, and whites are around. Think that even those whites are racist. And even the reason that they're there at the protest is to practice racism. Think about it. Observe. See if it makes sense. But that's something that I would encourage you to just kind of keep in mind uh, because we've seen this before. A lot of whites coming out to say that they're upset about an election or what have you and that they are with dark people to solve this problem. We've seen this before and frequently it just boils down to they lie and they practice racism. Okay, I can understand that. Thank you. For sure. Do your own research, though. Definitely continue thinking for yourself. You are super smart. Continue the phenomenal classwork as well, sir. Um, always love hearing some of our younger folks, children listening to the program and or talking with their parents about racism. That's something I hope all of our uh, attempted counter-racist parents are doing. Uh, do we have other folks that we have not heard from? If you have commentary you want to share as well. Yeah. We can hear you. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, 
I thought uh, the caller at six. Can I get a cup of water, please? They must be talking to someone else. Do we have other folks uh, that we have not heard from who had commentary they were going to share? Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hello? 909, go ahead. We'll uh, get other people oh. as we go. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to say um, about the uh, uh, journalist that died of cancer, the, the black female. Gwen Eiffel. That, um, yes, Gwen Eiffel. Um, um, cancer cells live off of uh, sugar. Um, like I, when you said that, uh, you know, you think that there was some, you know, racism was a contributing factor of her, um, you know, you know, dying early or whatever. I was just thinking, I wanted to say that, you know, cancer cells, um, they live off of sugar. So, you know, when you have a lot of bitterness and, you, you know, from racism and stuff like that, a lot of times we, um, turn to sugar to, you know, to, so we can feel better or whatever. But, you know, you're feeding the cancer cells. Um, and, you know, that's 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 something that I wanted to say. I know a lot of times, in, even in hospitals, man, when you go get cancer treatment, they'll give you, like, candy. Like, so, you, you know, which will, which will, which, which they're, you know, which, which feeds the, the cancer cells, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, you have to be careful even if you're getting treated for it, not to take candy from, um, you know, after your treatment or whatever. I just wanted to say, like, you know, for people to think about that, like when they eat refined sugar and stuff like that, like we're all producing cancer cells. All of, all, everybody is producing cancer cells. But depending on, like, you know, you don't want to feed them. You know, you want so I just wanted to say that people to be careful about eating sugar because you're feeding cancer cells, and you do have cancer cells. We all have cancer cells that are producing, but they die, you know, immune system, if you got a strong immune system and whatnot. So, um, I was just, don't you think, is it funny that, you know, like you said, when, like I was saying, like when you have such a hard day or whatever, you know, you want to feel better, you turn to sweet things, but that, that could have been something that she did. She might've been someone that liked sweets or something, you know, I don't know, but, um, I just want people to think about that, you know. Don't don't turn to sugar when you have, you know, your, your hard days or whatever, because you're you know you're feeding your cancer cells. And um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, um, I don't know. I forgot what I was going to say. It was something about art. Yeah, I did a piece uh, last last uh, contemporary call in about the artist uh, Kehinde Wild, uh, Wildy or something like Wildy? I think that's his name. I'm not sure. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. Black uh, black male artist. Mm, I don't think anybody really uh, spoke on it. Um, what do you think about that, like him putting uh, black images onto white? Like, like white, nobody spoke on it, but what, did, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, the the wacky thing about it was I played it. I had just I was just having a conversation with 
some other black males. Someone mentioned his artwork and uh, they had just been to an art exhibit here in Washington State. They had a lot of art. I don't know if some of his work was there or not, but they were saying, I think, that they had been to that museum previously and some of his work was there. And he had a painting uh, where a black person had chopped off a white person's head with a sword and was holding the decapitated head. And then, like, three days after that conversation, that piece came out. So that was kind of wild. Uh, so that was one of the reasons, that was one of the main reasons that I uh, played it. But it's difficult for me to comment because I haven't seen enough of his work and I haven't seen it like live. I think one of the features of uh, Mr. Wiley's work is that it's really big, like massive, like uh, mm-hmm. six feet tall or what have you. So I think that's one that you would really have to see it in person to appreciate and evaluate his content. Like I've seen some of the pictures online, but I'm sure it's radically different looking at something on a small screen as opposed to looking at something that's the same size as you. So I don't really feel uh, adequately qualified to comment on his artwork, but I did think it was interesting. Some of the things that he was talking about in the piece in terms of why he put those images of black people in his artwork. And I think he mentioned the word worship. I remember that from last week. Yeah. Worshiping white people specifically. uh... That piece with the black female had uh, chopping off the head of a, holding the head of the white female. That's uh, from the Haitian Revolution. I didn't know if you knew that. You probably did, but uh, that's an image from the uh, Haitian Revolution. But it, uh, um, it's, he did it in a female. Um, he did it with black female instead of a. Uh, it was it, originally it was a white male. Fascinating. And, um, yeah, that's, that's, he's, 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 it's something else I didn't want to go too far into. We talked, I think we, I don't know if you remember us discussing him some years back, but yeah, he's interesting. Oh, I, I did want to say, like, for the journalists, I was saying, uh, I think we need to tighten up on our analysis, well, deepen our analysis. And um, I was just going to give some advice to, I think people should follow, like, uh, Donald Trump is appointing uh, people to his cabinet. And I think if uh, people, could uh, if they want to uh, any whoever he whoever he appoints to do some research on the person that he appoints and see you know what, what their background is and 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 whatnot because uh, he's appointing a lot of uh, interesting characters. I mean like open race open r- openly racist statements and stuff like that. So just wanted people to uh, make sure they're not sleeping on um, Donald Trump and his uh, his appointees. Grand Mr. Jeff Sessions, Alabama U.S. Senator. Um, other folks uh, that we have not heard from have a commentary. Line should be open if you have a hand up. Feel free. Hello? Uh, yes, sir. 5074. Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call. My, my quest, I have a question. My question is, uh, if someone had a goal of spending zero dollars to support the system of white supremacy, in say three years, five years, do you have resources like past episodes, books, websites that would help to achieve that goal? More specifically, what what do you do or people that you know do to use your dollars in a counter-racist way? And I'll mute my line. Folks can uh, share on that as we go. I'm not aware of anyone who has made that a specific goal uh, to spend zero dollars or if they happen to be some in some other part of the world and have a different form of currency, uh, but that they're not going to use any currency uh, to support the system of racism, white supremacy. I do know that Dr. Cambon, 
uh, specifically and Mr. Fuller specifically, I do know that those two people have talked about uh, trying to reduce our spending as much as possible. Now, they haven't said zero, but they have tried to. I know I've heard both of them specifically saying that's one thing that we can do to be as miserly as possible. Um, I know Dr. Kanban and talking about not doing cable, just little things that we could cut out that would do a big difference, not doing cable, not doing movies. Like we really get encouraged to do a lot of uh, unnecessary spending. Uh, I think if you're trying to do uh, zero, I think a lot of that would be figuring out some things that you can do on your own, whether it's crops, making your own clothing materials of that nature. Uh, I'm sure there are other folks who listen in who, uh, Dr. Kanban, that would probably, he talked about that. He went out, he and his wife, someone emailed me about his wife. Uh, today and his son, they went out and made their own house and a lot of that. I, I'm, they, that is the one person I can think of who is closest. I don't know if he stated in exactly those terms, but to do as much as possible to not be supporting uh, financially the system of racism, white supremacy. We all do in some way, but to try uh, to minimize that as much as possible. And I know he talked about that on some of his previous uh, visits. So that would be maybe one resource. Uh, and even you could call, he gives out his number uh, on the air regularly. So you can maybe even call him and chat it up, see if he has some ideas, suggestions. And as listeners, as we go and other people get an opportunity to share, if you have ideas or suggestions, uh, resources that maybe he can check out, share as we go. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from, uh, if you want to respond to his question, uh, share your own thoughts, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to the callers and the listeners. Um, to answer the previous caller's question, uh, what I try to do is, well, I don't go to any movies whatsoever. Um, I don't spend my money at movie theaters at all. Um, I try to spend as much money as I can with black people um, that have products or services that I that I need or I can u- utilize. Um, so I make that a, a point, and as a family, that's how we, we function as far as holistically speaking. Um, I don't eat out, um, and if I do eat out, it'll be at restaurants run by black people. A lot of, uh, if, or if most times it's Caribbean restaurants or other restaurants run by black people or not white people. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I would say that's that's really what I, I try to focus on, and that's something that I've raised my son to do. That's something my wife does as well. So collectively as a family, that's basically the way that we, we do things. Um, my wife is uh, starting to starting her own business with uh, making handbags, women's handbags, and she buys African fabrics from um, African textile makers, things of that nature. So that's I, I would contribute that to the discussion. Um, I wanted to touch on a couple of the clips that you played. Uh, first, I wanted to say rest in peace to Gwen Eiffel. Uh, she was just brilliant, and it is sad to lose her at such a young age. She did uh, quite a few profound things, and um, she should be lauded for her fighting against racism, white supremacy, and being um, accurate in her presentations in regards to how she uh, did the news and her thoughtfulness and um it's just really sad to lose her at such a young age. And like you said, we lost so many people this year. It's just um, really incalculable, the kind of losses that we've had this year. So um, hopefully we don't get any serious um, doozies before December 31st comes, but you never know. Um, so speak on the Emmett Till clip. Um, I just find that interesting 
because the way that they treated his father um, and used the premise of his father getting into trouble before he was killed, <clears throat> excuse me, as a premise to uh, demonize uh, Emmett Till himself um, due to his being murdered for basically no reason, ultimately just racism, white supremacy. Um, I just find that a case of intergenerational demonization. So if you have a situation where um, a black male child is killed and their father has, let's say, a history of getting into trouble or being rebellious against the system and ending up in prison or just having, just making a mistake in life and ending up in jail for some reason. I find that very often they will utilize those, those situations as premises to demonize their children, grandchildren, things of that nature. They tend to look in our history, our family history to try and find some um, origin for this rogue behavior as if there's some genetic predisposition of black people to do criminal things or to be violent or whatever the case may be. Um, so that I just wanted to touch on that. Um, the Donald Trump, I just think that um, he's just really exposed white supremacy in the most uncodified, um, overt way that we've seen in a long time. So it's just emboldened white supremacists. Once you have um, the so-called uh, uh, most powerful man in the world in regards to him being a U.S. president or upcoming U.S. president, president-elect, I should say, um, ultimately, that's going to embolden white supremacists to act out in overt manner. So, again, I'll just admonish our people to be very careful in regards to dealing with white people or being in the presence of white people in any situation, including work. Lastly, I just wanted to touch on um, whether I wanted to ask you guys if you've seen an article recently or anything in regards to the Chinese being the first to use CRISPR. Uh, no, I have not. I'm going to send you an article because they actually are going to be the first country to use CRISPR and they're using gene editing to create um, an infusion of cells that's supposed to accelerate and aggressively attack lung cancer is the premise that they're using. Um, I have a feeling just because they're publicizing it now that white people have already done gene editing. I don't think that they're the first, but this is what they're reporting. So I'll just, you know, I'll take that for what it's worth, but ultimately white people are liars. I think that they've already been doing it because white people, I don't think, would allow anyone else to um, one-up them in regards to do, using something like this. And I think whatever they've used it for would be in uh, ge racial genetic warfare. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you have a hand up, you should be with us. Other folks that we have not heard from. Good good, uh, good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. First of all, I'd like to say good evening to all the uh, listeners and also the host. Um, I just want to go over some of the news clips were always outstanding. The best part of the show was the news clips, my weekly updated news clips that I don't get a chance to listen to, so I turn into tune into the cows to get an update. Um, I was taken back by uh, Emmett Till's dad. Um, I I don't know. I think one time, Mister, uh, I mean Gust, you had. I think you had someone talking about that case. Am I? Am, am I? Is my memory? My memory serves me right. You had someone talking about the Emmett Till case on your show at one point. Is that true? Yes, ma'am. Keith Beauchamp, okay. he was on the program uh, last spring. He did the documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. 
uh, where we spent a good chunk of that program uh, talking about Mr. Till, and we also uh, had Cameron McWhorter on the program. Interesting. Importantly, Cameron McWhorter was on the program in 2011. He disputed me about whether or not the white terrorists who killed Emmett Till publicly admitted that they did this. And I told him that they did. And there was record of this. And he said, Oh, I don't think that's true. How could that be? There was a trial and blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned PBS specifically, this was five years ago. I told him, I said, this is reported on PBS. This is widely known. And this is a white guy who's written a book. He writes for the uh, wall street journal, prominent journalist. And he disputed me about that acted like he didn't know about that. So I'm glad that came out in the piece, but yes, those are at least two yes, examples. Yes, we talk I, about I was it. listening to that. And I said to him, I remember on your show him uh, state, I mean, you know, you and him arguing about that. But what I wanted to say also, I don't remember, I don't rec- recollect anything about Emmett Till's dad coming out in that show. Am I wrong? Did, did we, I know it was long, it was tense, but I never heard about this piece coming into play with, with, with respect to um, what happened at that trial. And I also want to know, was that evidence ever introduced at the trial that his father was the way he was. I mean, what is this, sins of the father or something like that? You you heard that statement about sins of the father, whatever your father does, if it's incorrect, hopefully it comes on the children or whatever to that extent. I mean, it sounds, you know, just really crazy. I just wanted to know that. You can t- talk about that later. Well, my phone is about to go dead because I'm on my um, house phone. But what I, um, let me just brush it up here. Um, also, is... Is President Obama delusional about his kids? He's saying that his kids, he feels that the kids are better off today than we are. I mean, I just, I remember I I called in about the incident, and you pointed out that you had the incident posted on your Facebook with respect to the Maplewood incident about the girl saying to the guy, little girl saying to the guy, you can't can't play or something like that because you're black. I mean, I don't know if he's delusional. He should understand that Sasha and Malia are kind of insulated because who they are and and the status that they're in. So that kind of... was kind of crazy there. That statement was really off balance. Uh, the racial inc- there was this woman. I guess I, I, it kind of leads me to the last story you talked about last week with respect to um, about this the black guy having a conversation with this white racist right in his face, talking about how he didn't really want to be around black people, but the black guy trying to make him feel that oh you're thinking wrong because I have a white son and I'm married to a white woman or whatever, and how she stated how she wanted to, you know, she went to Miami and she didn't want, she felt that she was, you know, she felt uncomfortable now she's living in a white, more white area. So that kind of brought back to, that story kind of referenced that story from last week. Um, And the guns, how a lot of the uh, people voted, again, they're voting on one, one, one thing, issues with respect to guns as opposed to voting for what's really on their mind. It's one issue, people who voted. Also, this whole Facebook censorship thing about the, 13, the 10 seconds of them um, being able to uh, uh, read over an article and, and give it a, a, the, the thumbs up or thumb downs in 10 seconds, that sounds pretty much slave labor, I mean, you know, intensive labor to me. I don't know how a person can really do that. And um, this white, white, why white, oh, please can you, before I leave, um, can you please tell me about the article again, white, why white men, what was it, is it this article in GQ? I mean, I heard you, but I, I'm sorry, I was kind of 
doing something else, but two articles that I we need the audience need to take a look at, the one in GQ and also the LA Times with respect to this coded type of language that white people these uh, to the left are using or this leftist or I mean this rightist organization is using this, this coded type of language. Uh, it's called con- what is it called? C U N Quakes or I'm sorry. C U C K Cuck C U C K Snowflake Masculinist, a guide to the language of the alt, and that's A L T, right. So that's right. Okay. The L A Times article and the G Q article is why angry white men love calling people cucks. And if you go to the L A Times article, the second article is linked in the L A Times article. Okay, that wraps it up, there. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I just wanted to say quickly as well, with regards to the Emmett Till, they did not bring the information up about his father in the trial after they were acquitted for the murder that did go to trial. Then there was an effort to have them charged and brought to trial for kidnapping. That's when the information about his father was brought in and that killed that. That didn't even make it to trial, but they didn't bring the information up about his father in the trial, to my knowledge. And this is all in a book that people can read other folks that we have not heard from that you all have commentary can i be heard yes ma'am your volume is a little low if you can speak up lots of uh black self-respect is this better well yes ma'am okay thank you greetings everybody um, a few things that I kind of wanted to comment on first was, um, the, the story cut off, but they said that a student was burned with a hot glue gun. That's something I just have to look up, um, you know, by who, where, and for what. But then there's also the article, or there was a lot of talk about Trump and there's a woman who I assume is a white woman. And she says that, you know, the one that was living down in Florida, and that she doesn't want to be a minority. And um, my, I don't want to say necessarily my codified response, but it's like my codified thought. Like anytime I hear that, I hear Dr. Welsing say that the best way that white people can help um, non-white people is really to help other white people become more comfortable, excuse me, um, become more comfortable with their minority status on the planet. She said that that's what sociologists and psychologists should do. And um, I think that no matter what, that is what I would ask white people to do um, if I was gonna ask them to do anything. Also, I just wanted to emphasize the Rifleman's Creed um, only because there are a few different things that I've heard like this and I don't want for myself, want to be, first of all, just ignorant about it. I had, I had never heard the Rifleman's Creed. Um, but then second, naive enough not to believe that this kind of underground or like I'm just programming happens for white people behind closed doors when we're not around or there's just a few of us quote unquote tokens that children, children are learning these type of things. And I know we have, um, you know, like our national anthem or 
however we describe it, but most of us don't even know it. Um, but not, and not that it necessarily calls to us to do something as potent as take arms and defend ourselves. But I just wanted to make note of that. I'm 1842. I'm the one out here in Virginia, um, and I am pretty positive and sure that there are a good number of white people who know the Rifleman's Creed front to back, back to front. We have gun shows here like every other week. Um, the clip about the legalization of marijuana, I know we all already know that this is all about money, but I think that this is evidence of the system refining itself or reconstructing itself. I'm not sure. Um, but, but I don't think that they're making as much money as they predicted they would make by continuing to lock black men up at the rate that they have been. So the entire, not I won't say it's the only push for it, but I think that it's substantial that it's time to reevaluate and redo because they're not making enough money. So then they can put tracking devices, send the black men or whomever, wherever, and then you can you won't get locked up where we don't have to feed you, clothe you, be responsible for you, and all that kind of stuff. We'll just make you pay really, really high fines. There's taxes on it, all this money to get licensed for it, certified for it. The rates of it will perhaps go up. I don't know that speculation. I'm not sure. Bail money, all of it, like money. Um, and then also they can taint it and do whatever they want to to, you know, dumb down the masses or however you look at it. I thought the use of the word wobbler was a code for discretion that, you know, it's up to their discretion whether or not they will prosecute an individual as a misdemeanor or a felony crime. They use that word wobbler. And then I thought it was interesting, the racial showcasing story of the uh, non-white black female who let someone stay in her apartment and then she pled guilty and all of that. That was, you know, for me, very obvious racial showcasing. And then um, just one of the other things that I've been practicing in terms of codification for, I do not interact with all non-white people the same way, especially if I don't know you um, because I don't know your angle. So, but there are some that I do know. And when people ask, about, you know, well, how do you feel about Trump? The main thing I say, no matter how I word it, is you need to Google Dr. Frances Cresswell-Singh. Um, she predicted it a year ago. She's smarter than me. She knows way more than I will and do. So Google her, watch the videos, read her work, and then once they do, if they do, then we can talk. But me postulating and talking about my own personal thing, if you're really, really interested, I highly recommend that you Google her and you become knowledgeable and take it seriously if you feel that something is going on. Um, I can comment later, but thank you for the time. Appreciate that, Ashe. Uh, correct myself as well. That when I was mentioning people that passed this year, I meant to say Dr. Afini Shakur, Tupac Shakur's mother. I said uh, Dr. Asada Shakur at the time. Apologies for the error. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, did you all have commentary? Can I be heard? Good evening, everyone. Uh, let's get our caller in Toronto, and then we'll get the astute one. Uh, hello there, uh, Mr. Gus and uh, callers. This is Klondike Mike calling after a long hiatus. Oh, you're going to do... 
<laughs> I'm not. Is that because uh, I'm the product of a interracial marriage, or because I'm sleeping with one? I'm not actually sleeping with one. I'm just asking you, you know, why. But never mind. Can I be heard? Yes, obviously I can be heard. We can't hear you. Yeah. How are you? How are you? I'm sorry, guys. I'm having a bit of racial battle fatigue, and I just uh, wanted to uh, connect with some uh, some uh, some people. Wow. What's what's the problem? <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, life in general seems to be full of lots of problems. And uh, and when you are a uh, mixed race individual such as myself, it can be very uh, um, those problems can be exacerbated, I suppose. Um, and uh, well, I have a million things I could probably say, um, but really, I just wanted to say hi. Um, but uh, I also um, I just figure I might as well let you guys know that um, my father was a Trump supporter or is a Trump supporter. And uh, I just figure that's probably useful information that people should know. In fact, uh, there was a time where I was uh, going through a very big struggle with uh, race and everything. And I even was trying to um, be more honest about it to everybody in my family, um, both uh, white and non-white. And, um, and, you know, there was a, I can remember getting into like hour long debates with my father um, who, who seemed to lack a certain amount of sensitivity to my uh, perspective, and um, can you uh, remind us yes. if your father is white or not? Just so we are all. Yes, my father is white. Grand. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm all over the place. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, yeah, yes, my father is a white white male, and um, yeah. Anyways, I just thought that's uh, useful information. In fact, actually, um, it was last year. Around uh, it was last year around the Super Bowl exactly, and uh, football is not something I'm interested in. Um, however, I couldn't help but be somewhat invested in it because I was I felt some kind of dragged into the whole um, conversation because at the time there was a, there were two teams and they were taking archetypes and they ended up being racial archetypes. I'm sure you guys remember it way more than I do. However, um, I happened to be visiting one part of Canada at that time, and uh, I really had no interest in watching the football game because I knew it was going to be filled with racialized imagery and uh, symbols and all sorts of just politics that I just really wasn't interested in dealing with at the time. However, I had to go see my my father, right? Um, we're, We're not in the same part of the world very often, so... Uh, I was invited to the Super Bowl with him and uh, his friend, who is indirectly an uncle through marriage, I guess, in a way, or a cousin through marriage, maybe. My bad. Um, Anyways, I went to this football game, and I found it very traumatic being there with my um, father and my um, extended family. My extended family is, um, my father remarried uh, another non-white person, but basically a non-white Argentinian who who could pass as white for the most part, depending on what type of part of the world you're in. 
Anyways, um, but uh, I guess other parts of her family are less white than she is. And uh, so we were watching the football game and it was all very, you know, they were talking about Trump and stuff like that. I don't remember all the details because a year ago at this point. Um, but I do remember one point, <laughs> the uh, other male who is married to a non-white female and she is actually, she has some of her Latino or Latina features still. Um, these two white males, my father and this other guy, were conversing, and they were talking about Trump, and they were just like, you know, oh, yeah, man, I totally, I totally agree, man, and like, and yeah, man, and I can't, you know, and blah, 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 and, um, and at one point, I can't remember exactly how it came up, but um, the other guy was like, my kids don't even look like me, man, look at them. <laughs> Because uh, the um, non-white children have Latino features, which is quite nice to see. They're very, um, very beautiful children, you know, like, um, anyways, um, but that joke was, uh, it stuck out to me. It was very, um, because um, it was like, a, they were, they were letting out some of their pain as white men, you know, like, um uh, from their perspective, right? And uh, that joke just, to me, was just like, even if it was a joke, which, even if it was a joke, there's truth and jest, right? I don't need to explain to you guys. You know the significance of all this. No, no, no. Anyways. Says, jokes are grievances. <laughs> I was going to uh, there you go. pause there uh, if we have more time and you want to share more, but that's a pretty major Welsing moment right there, them saying, look at my children you know they look like little little negras or you know little beaners i mean i can't believe that sort of thing is <laughs> dr what that is the essence of dr welsing's theory and uh, i suspect she might even say that is uh, a component of why she knew a year in advance that uh, president-elect donald trump was going to be in this position uh the astute one thank you for your patience sir good to hear from you a uh, long time klondike mike uh thank the you. astute one uh, were you going to comment sir Yes, I was. Uh, thanks for letting me share. Good evening to everyone. I just wanted to uh, talk about, um, I didn't catch uh, all the clips, um, but uh, I, I partially heard them, uh, I guess, people trying to pass le legislation about um, the conceal and carry, where, where it would be uh, reciprocated in other states. So if you got it in you had a conceal and carry license in one state, you can go to another state and do the same thing. And um, I just my my thinking is just um this it's going to just allow more you know race soldiers on the street on the patrol more uh people to uh do things like um George Zimmer Zimmerman or whatever so uh i just think that's a warning to black people uh to not to be provoked by you know suspected racists on the streets that are basically on on patrol or whatever, trying to provoke people, incite um, some type of physical altercations, and then that can end up to them saying, "Oh well, I, um, I, in self-defense, I had to, uh, you know, kill, you know, shoot the person or whatever." And I just think that's just giving more uh, more uh, leeway for suspected racists to uh, physically harm uh, non-white people, particularly black people. Um, also, uh, I didn't get a chance to, um, um, call in, um, 
I believe it was last week or maybe two weeks ago at the uh, compensatory call-in show. But that one clip it just stood out to me. I know other people have mentioned it, but the the, the suspected racist that was saying that um, he doesn't value uh, fairness, um, quote unquote. He values uh, domination, and that, and that just really got me thinking. Like, man, that is that's very 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 important, um, and I think. Black people just need to hear that more often from from white people. They just need to to know that. Um, and then I got to, uh, I was thinking about what values do you know the average black person uh, have, and and our values need to be <clears throat> reevaluated. And um, and I, I think we should make a effort, people who are uh, less confused to praise people that are doing stuff that is constructive. And if they're not doing anything constructive, no praise, no type of admiration or anything, of course, you're not going to um, practice anti-blackness um, or anything. But if, if it's not something that is constructive, then no praise. Just for instance, like the, the young scholar that calls in um, during the uh, program, uh, yeah, he should be praised for um, getting good grades. He should be praised for trying to be a, a counter-racist at that, um, that early um age so um, maybe that can kind of change the values of of, of non of non-white people um, and lastly uh just about the cannabis um i i you know i'm around I, i'm around a lot of cannabis users that use it very uh frequently and and I, this is not to say that everyone is in this situation but most of the cannabis users that i know are uh they're pretty non-productive or they tend to focus on non-constructive behavior behavior. And um, recently I was speaking to a teenager um, this week and they were telling me that one of their friends uh, was saying that, well, man, I'm just, I'm ready to smoke. The person that usually sells me the, um, the cannabis isn't around. I'm just trying to smoke, man. I, and that just really kind of stuck with me. Not like I didn't know this, but it's like um, I think especially when the young, younger uh, people are smoking cannabis and really focusing on that, they will never develop to be a counter racist. They will never they won't probably develop into uh, just being less confused. Um, they'll end up being more confused. And I just I, I just don't agree with um the 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 way that's being promoted with the cannabis use but uh anyway i hope i didn't sound too confusing um thanks for letting me share and that's all i have appreciate that uh other folks uh, if you would like to share your thoughts feel free if we have not heard from you uh let's not lollygag uh dial in. i did want to make sure i got this in really quick as well that segment where they were talking about the situation in georgia uh, down in Forsyth, uh, one of my favorite drivers in Georgia uh, got that piece from the BBC where they were talking this white woman moves to her part of Forsyth, Georgia, because she didn't want to be around any dark people. She just wanted to have her little ethno white ethnographic uh, center, white ethno state, mini white ethno state. They don't mention the history of Forsyth, Georgia. And that's the sort of thing when we talk about context uh, and history and just try to learn as much as you can. Uh, when you casually omit something like that, that piece would have been so much stronger just saying, oh, yeah, she specifically came to this region because she didn't want to be around any non-white region, uh, any non-white people. 
And this specific county is where they had a historic racial purge and drove out approximately a thousand black people uh, to have an exclusively white county. Uh, that just would have been a great uh, addition. And I would submit that the whites at the BBC are not ignorant uh, about racism. If ignorant Gus knows that, then I'm sure that someone at the BBC could have easily ascertained that information. Other folks we haven't heard from? May I be heard? Uh, 2812, last four digits, 2812. Thanks, Gus. Appreciate it. Um, greetings to the callers. Um, I try to be efficient um, in reference to the news clips. Uh, one of the things that I... Uh, Quick notes was the gentleman had said that um, in reference to some of the white supremacist uh, the riots and some of the violent uh, behavior that he had mentioned that Trump had said he needs people to knock it off. And I thought he was probably practicing racism uh, simply because that saying knock it off is not talking about the problem seriously. Um, I just, if Trump really did say that, and I would have to verify that. I mean, that's just he's basically just telling people that these are just some people, they're just, you know, just hanging around there. They might hit a couple of black people or non-white people, but it's not a big deal. Um, and then the other thing I wrote down is that at some point, and maybe the callers can help me, do they expect Donald Trump to make a statement on him being formally associated with uh, quote unquote white extremist groups? And the reason why I mentioned that is because during um, Mr. Obama's presidency, anything black that happened, he consistently was badgered about it and had to make a statement about it. And I just wonder if Mr. Trump during his presidency is going to be up on that podium uh, frequently, as we saw Mr. Obama making speeches, um, Trayvon looks like my son, or having to defend himself against these white extremist groups. I just found that interesting. Also, um, when the lady was talking about, and you can correct me, guys, about the event in Canada, um, and said uh, there were some remarks being made and the gentleman appeared to have brown skin, but the white man was clearly identified. And I, that just confused me a little bit because at what point did they not know that this gentleman was either white or non-white, uh, appeared to have brown skin. Um, I found that very, very interesting. Um, a couple other quick things is that, um, in reference to the cannabis, um, yesterday on my job, uh, I was in the lead, I'm in the leadership program. We were walking to a hospital, and one of the white females walking behind me said, "Hey, have you seen this new show with Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart?" And obviously, um, she was trying to be make a joke. Um, but uh, I said, "No, I'm not familiar with it." And uh, she said, "Well, yeah, you know, they're making food and they're talking about weed and everything in that nature, and the timing of it of this show." Also, Snoop's TGN Network, he's still a victim. But um, they're promoting this non-recreational activity. They're promoting this as a recreational activity, but it's it's just not going to help black people. And I just thought the timing of that show it has, has been pretty bad as well, and it's really, really tacky. Um, there's also an article uh, in The Atlantic that says, getting therapy instead of serving time. That also goes into the marijuana as well. Um, I can just remember in the late 80s and early 90s growing up in New York City, that was not the thought. Uh, no one was getting any sort of therapy. No one was getting any sort of intervention. Uh, you know, people were homeless or they were getting locked up, one of the two. Um, 
And then lastly, there was an article, um, and I'm not sure if it's still up. I believe it was on Yahoo, and I don't know if it's accurate. Donald Trump possibly talking about Sheriff David Clark as being the director for Homeland Security. And I had mentioned last week on last week's call that sometimes when I read articles, what I'll do is I'll go to Stormfront and read the article and then read the comments. And I just wanted to read this comments from uh, from not even a suspected white supremacist, but a white supremacist. And on the comments, uh, he stated, let me put it this way. If Donald Trump has to have a token Negro in his staff somewhere, I'd rather he hire Ben Carson instead of David Clark for no other reason than Dr. Ben Carson has a black wife. Uh, Sheriff David Clark has a white female. But the relationship is not really what caught, is not really what caught my attention. What caught my attention is the fact that they use that these are people who classify themselves as white using the word token. Um, from Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing and also uh, from Gus, what I've just learned in my brief time listening to these programs is that there's no name calling uh, because it's not constructive. But I would love to ask a white person why would they consider these people tokens? And the reason why I would like to ask them that is that means that they are clearly not confused that there are token Negroes and that they are the people that put these people in power. I know that might be a very easy concept for you guys to understand, but I've never heard a white person use that term as token. I've heard us uh, non-white people use the term, like, you know, uh, Uncle Tom and tokens and things of that nature, but I just found that interesting. And I'll go ahead and mute my line. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Good point. I have heard a few times where a white person has called a black person a token or an Uncle Tom, but exactly as you just stated, if a white person is using those type of terms to classify a black person, clearly they cannot be confused about racism, white supremacy, which I think someone has said before. Uh, any uh, the caller at seven seven two two? Did you have commentary seven seven two two? Yes, sir. I do. Thank you. Uh, greetings to all the callers and the host. That's the mean KC. I was actually listening to Blood at the Roots, uh, the show from a few weeks ago yesterday. So when they brought out Forces County, that was like the first thing that came into my mind was how Oprah in 87, 30 years ago, Oprah had to leave before sundown. And obviously the BBC knew that. Uh, the first thing I, that came to my mind was Diamond and Silk. These are two non-white um, black females who were involved in the Trump campaign were interviewed on the Laura Ingram program a couple of nights ago. I thought that was extremely interesting. Laura Ingram um, considers herself one of the more softer alt-right, uh, quote-unquote conservative white female. Um, and she's also being looked at for the press secretary, had two non-white females. I believe that she was, uh, they were being showcased um, just very tacky, extremely tacky, and using these two terroristic almost some of the questions that she was asking them regarding their um, their religious views. Um, also on Marketplace, I noticed that there was a piece with Kai Rizdahl, which I thought he was a non-white male, but he's completely racist suspect, white male. He was speaking to a young uh, woman about the Star Wars franchise, and she brought out that she... I was disgusted by the portrayal of the brunette badass, and I'm quoting her there, uh, image in the Star Wars movie. And she happens to be a blonde white female. So it's 
we see a lot of confusion being put out by people practicing racism. I believe uh, you have blonde females talking about they're tired of seeing brunette females. Um, again, this quote unquote feminism uh, breeding more confusion among mostly non-white people who are fans of these movies. Also, there was a New York Times article this past week that caught my attention regarding Hispanics uh, classifying themselves as whites. Now more Hispanics classifying themselves as whites. I'm saying that in 2000 to 2010, there was a giant shift in the classifications as far as people changing their classifications and is expected in 2020, obviously with the recent events that there would be even a larger shift um, from people who are now considered quote unquote Hispanic non-white to Hispanic white. Um, so they're kind of jumping ship. I thought that that was an interesting article. Um, also another thing was just the uh, in, in response to the caller who asked about what he could do to minimize his his participation in the system of racism and white supremacy, I have been helped greatly by the advice of Dr. Kamal Cambon and the advice specifically that black liberation trumps everything. So that particular thought I try to inculcate into my day-to-day -day life as far as my purchasing and spending habits. Um, also, trying to move into a home that, I, although I haven't built it, but I'm trying to move into a home which I've purchased with little little funds as possible to eliminate paying rent and things as such. Um, food, growing food, I'm, I'm part of a food cooperative where I live. So attempting to reduce my amount of participation in these white companies, that's something that came to mind. Um, 1842, the caller who spoke earlier about um, asking people to listen to Frances Cress Welsing before telling them her thoughts on racism and white supremacy. I think that's an extremely constructive um, activity because um, the same thing, I, I took some advice from one of the previous guests regarding asking people what were the last five books that they've read. And whenever I ask someone what the last five books they've read, it kind of tells me where that person's at and whether we should even be spending time attempting to have a conversation. Um, those are my thoughts and I'll take my call offline. Thank you. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have commentary, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, hello to everyone on the line. Um, this is Kendra. Um, I would like to comment on the article that um, Matt Culkins wrote that was published um, on the SeattleTimes.com website and uh, posted on uh, your Facebook page, uh, Gus. Um, I noticed how Matt Polkins uh, used the, the two, uh, the, co the comments of two victims of racism, um, Seahawks players Kevin Lewis and Richard Sherman, to try to justify his position on uh, did LeBron James go too far for calling out coded racist uh, language, more or less saying um, you, LeBron, and your hurt feelings uh, is the problem, not the coded um, word posse that Phil Jackson used uh, while talking about uh, LeBron's business associates and friends. Um, for me, when I heard the way uh, Phil Jackson used posse, it represented a group of unskilled thug black males. Um, Matt Colton, um, the author of the, of the um, article, then goes into um, white, skillful uh, naivete um, by pulling in the comments of um, Kevin Lewis and Richard Sherman, the two Seahawks players, 
I referenced earlier, um, Mr. Lewis said if it came from Trump, it would be one thing, but Phil Jackson, you know, has never had any real um, issues with saying racist things as far as uh, Mr. Lewis knew. And oh, look, who Phil Jackson has coached, I'm sure uh, referring to um, coaching Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, uh, Rodman, I think he coached Kobe and Shaq, if I'm not mistaken, and so on. Um, as if him coaching, you know, these uber, you know, talented black males mean that uh, Phil Jackson could not possibly uh, be practicing racism um, by using the word posse to represent uh, LeBron James and his uh, associates. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, at all, you know, upset with Mr. Lewis, you know, VGQ, um, he is a victim like I am, so he's entitled to his opinion. Um, Mr. Richard Sherman said he didn't see it as a racial thing. And if you say everything is racist, then nothing is racist. I was kind of confused uh, by that statement. But again, VGQ applies with him as well. Um, then, of course, Matt Colkin, the author, agreed with Mr. Sherman and um, statement and went into what I call, you know, white sorrow by stating how badly, you know, he feels for Phil Jackson if he truly didn't mean anything by using the word posse. Uh, he then tries to sanitize the article you know, by using certain words and, and sentences, and a few of those being, um, uh, well, I think he said unfairly accusatory, you know, basically saying, you know, how dare you try and ruin the reputation of a man of uh, Phil Jackson's stature. I think another line he used is fair making a verbal mistake and you can't have people walking on eggshells, you know, like you black people are so sensitive, you know, we have to watch everything we say to you because you guys, you know, will take it the wrong way. And uh, lastly, Culkins uh, says, um, I can't help but wonder if him referring to um, LeBron James, if his reaction only widens the racial gap as if a non-white person, you know, have the power to quote unquote widen the racial gap. Um, I can see victims reading this article, you know, in our confusion, and we all are confused to some degree, including myself, you know, and saying, you know what, maybe, you know, there's no racial undertone to what Phil Jackson said. You know, that's why sometimes, you know, I just have to marvel at the ability of uh, racist men, racist women, and racist child to manifest just major confusion among us victims, you know, whether you know, in print or movies, um, TV shows, and so on. Uh, and that's my commentary so far. I'll keep further statements for later. Thank you. Appreciate that. That article is on my Facebook page, and I did comment. If you, you have to scroll all the way down because uh, there are a lot more comments now, and I was one of the first people to comment on that story. But I also thought it was uh, important in that article uh, the suspected race soldier, Matt Calkins, he goes from defending Phil Jackson and saying that LeBron James just made these rec reckless accusations out of nowhere uh, to talking about an earlier incident where he wrote an article about Marshawn Lynch, retired Seattle Seahawks player, and I guess people accused him of being racist with the way that he wrote the article. Uh, and that ends up being the focus. Like, this happens all the time when you have swell good white guys like me who get accused of being racist and it's just not cool and he just goes on from there I thought that was a real important aspect as well because I think that white 
racist narcissism where the focus has to constantly be about them and particularly if it's me being accused of being a bad person or racist then we we definitely got to focus on me and get back to the business of saying how great and wonderful i am not racist uh other folks that we haven't heard from do you have commentary you want to share greetings can i be heard yes sir greetings to uh gus and everybody uh first thing comes to my mind uh uh subject matter uh sports slash entertainment uh that I thought was interesting uh mr tommy smith uh and if you didn't know who that was black male uh who uh was one half of the uh iconic uh what I thought was a excellent symbol of black self respect uh with the uh raising of the uh black glove fist uh to represent uh represent uh the uh the anguish that uh non white black people go were going through at the time uh in America. Uh he has been well it happened in Mexico City back in nineteen sixty eight. Uh anyway he's been invited uh to uh, go back to Mexico City uh, within a few days, actually, uh, by the Oakland Raiders uh, owner. Uh, it's the son of the of of Mr. Davis, who used to be the owner. His son uh, uh, to light something, some some kind of lighting of that supposed to go on uh, at the stadium where they're going to be. I thought it, thought it was very ironic uh about about that uh, that he is uh uh going to I, I assume he's going to be there uh to light something i don't know what it's going to be lighting but <laughs> he's supposed to be it said, it said i saw in the article that he's supposed to be lighting uh some kind of uh uh substance uh, in order to uh get the game this football game actually the football game that is going to be played a professional football game is going to be played in mexico city mexico uh I, if, I don't know if it's tomorrow or it may be Monday night, something like that. Uh thought it was interesting. Uh, also on the same subject matter, we know John Carlos in the part he played also, but uh, a lot of people don't know that the white male who was also in the picture, uh, uh, he uh, uh, accepted the organization that they were a part of uh, patch to go on his uh, sweatsuit, uh, and uh, the the idea that I hear and I agree with that white people will get reminded by other white people. Uh, that white male's name was Peter Norman, and ever since after he had that patch on, he has been punished by other white people. Uh, uh, well, I'll put this way, reminded in a severe way. Uh, he actually, he actually is deceased. Uh, at, uh, been dead now for several years now. But uh, uh, he actually, the time that he ran, uh, still would be the top time that was ever ran by someone from the place that on Earth he's from. It's called Australia, uh, and he didn't even get. He was actually uh excommunicated out of uh track and field 
and also when the games were held in Australia a few years ago, he was purposely not invited to participate. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, an ex-athletic uh, 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 star would be asked to come back to something to be honored and that kind of stuff, but they just, just it goes back to that, that, that truth that uh, white people will remind other white people uh, if they do not uh, practice and behave as a white person should. Uh, moving on, uh, I have been hearing this word a lot uh, since I became uh, uh, functionally aware of, of racism and white supremacy, the word organizing or organize or organize as a uh, means to solve the problem. Now, they may not have been, the, the non-white people that, that use this word may not have been talking directly about solving the problem of racism and white supremacy, but, but subsequently, that's what you have to do in order to, in order to uh, get to any other problems. Uh, so I decided to study it. And, uh, of course, one of my sources was going to go to, uh, uh, to find out on what uh, Mr. Fuller's ideas are on the subject. And uh, through his books and also through some of his uh, uh, talks. And I know I've heard him mention that non-white people cannot organize to solve the problem of racist white supremacy. But anyway, uh, I'm going to read briefly uh, and very quickly uh, what he has in the word guide as far as under the notes part uh, of the word. And he has it in, 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 the, in the means of organized. And he has here notes. An assembly, a crowd, or a group of people are not necessarily an organization, nor are they necessarily a nation, etc. During the existence of white supremacy, racism, and according to compensatory counter-racist logic, those white persons of the known universe who have chosen to practice white supremacy, racism, are the most organized group of people in the known universe. During the existence of white supremacy, racism, and according to compensatory counter-racist logic, it is not possible for the victims of white supremacy, non-white persons, to organize as a group against white supremacy, racism. While subject to white supremacy, and according to a counter-racist code of thought, speech, and action, non-white people of the known universe can only organize as individual persons. The counter-racist code serves to organize and unify the collective thought, speech, and action of each individual victim of white supremacy. Non-white persons, a non-white person, and, and do so in a manner that motivates him or her to speak, to think, speak, and act effectively to replace the system of white supremacy racism with the system of justice balanced between people. And you know, through studying and, and reading that, uh, it makes it makes sense. It makes sense because as you as we look back on it, the 
the many attempts that we've had to do to to quote unquote organize, all of them have been uh, uh, destroyed as as a group because in order to organize as he's mentioning, it takes some power. It takes power to be able to do that. The power to to physically uh, prevent someone from destroying what you are building. Uh, but uh, as he mentions, by it by organizing around a code, uh, it would create only one perspective. Either we would be successful in that in our codification of uh, thought, speech, and action behavior, or they would have to kill us all. And last but not least, he. I want to try and make sure everybody gets about five minutes, just to make sure I don't miss anybody. Um, we had a couple of folks that haven't shared it all. Uh, once we get them in, if you want to make sure you finish up okay. that important point, we'll make time for that as well. Uh, appreciate that. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, anybody that we have missed completely, uh, feel free. Go ahead and share. Anyone we missed completely. I'd like to share. Hi. Uh, greetings, Gus, and other callers and listeners. I wanted to know before I discuss or uh, mention these two articles whether they had already been mentioned, and if so, I'll skip on those. But the allegations and lawsuits against Donald Trump, has was that one of your clips this evening, Gus? No, ma'am. Um, so I ran across two articles. Uh, Donald Trump is being sued. Uh, a lawsuit has been filed against charging Donald Trump with raping a 13-year-old child, girl. And this is an ongoing uh, set of charges that are currently uh, being assessed for uh, litigation and other lawsuits uh, that are pending against Donald Trump, uh, the president-elect, that... Uh, has been party to some 4,000 lawsuits over the last 30 years, 75 currently facing active lawsuits, and there's several analyses on those lawsuits. Many of them are pending, and three were settled against his um, Trump University, I think in the amount of around $25 million dollars. Um, This is the kind of individual that I have to say I cannot understand what I do. Let me me step. I understand why he he was selected, but this is a travesty, my God. And I wanted to quickly say that um, I heard you guys talking to, I think, Pam uh, in the archives recently, about a week ago maybe, and I heard you say something very poignant, very important. You said after President Obama, maybe it was just that they felt as the racist mindset works, that they could put anyone in the White House, irrespective as to nature, degeneracy, um, uh, depravity, or, or whatever the case may be, since he defiled according to the white racist terrorist supremacist mindset that anyone could go in after President Obama because according to that mindset, um, it was defiled. 
I thought that was a very poignant and strong observation. Just simply wanted to get that in. I appreciate you and all the work, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Oh, for sure. Appreciate that. I think if I remember correctly, I might have been struggling. Either people <laughs> didn't understand it or I didn't do a good job articulating that last week. But I did think that was something people should at least think about. Uh, the White House being defiled by uh, that no good Negro, President Obama. Um, other folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you had commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Awesome. Uh, this is Ken Steele, and I'm uh, from uh, Los Angeles, California, this week. And uh, I just wanted to uh, report. Uh, I've heard a few interesting things about the suspected white supremacists of this region. Uh, one thing that was reported to me um, by a, a white supremacist suspect was that um, down here and in areas that he says are closer to the equator, um, suspected white supremacists oftentimes um, will develop calluses on the corneas of their eyes due to um, exposure to the sun. I did not know that this was the case. Um, this person did confirm that uh, they had this condition um, in a hyperactive state, so this is, uh, has affected their vision somewhat. But he assured me that the uh, doctors that were treating him um, assured him that this was a normal occurrence amongst uh, suspected white supremacists. And this also uh, affects their eyes, uh, the areas around their eyes as well. Um, I, I was very uh, shocked to find out that they had failing eyes, but... Um, this is something that has been reported to me. Um, also, uh, something that I've been noticing um, in the past uh, week since the election is that um, when I am talking to suspected white supremacists, um, it seems that uh, none of the suspected white supremacists that I have been exposed to report that they have voted. Um, I don't know if uh, this is specifically because I am a non-white um, uh, victim of white supremacy, but uh, this seems to be fairly consistent, or rather, this seems to be consistent um, uh, behavior that I have observed. Um, uh, this, uh, I think it coincides with my report last week, but this is just something that I've uh, seen even more. And I believe there is now a report on um, going around on various news sources that there is a suspected white supremacist that is um, uh, making a conscious effort to avoid um, uh, seeing the uh, election results. So I'm just uh, suspecting that white supremacists are having a lot of fun playing games about who voted for Donald Trump. I didn't vote for Donald Trump, and this is something that I'm going to expect to uh, continue as the results of this election or the consequences of this election reveals itself. Um, another thing uh, that I will mention, uh, jumping on what a caller mentioned earlier, is that um, the use of the word token, um, this word is uh, used very frequently amongst white supremacists that I grew up with. I suspect that this uh, is due to 
um, the the name of one of the characters on South Park, which, uh, from my experience, has informed a entire generation of uh, suspected white supremacists. I think that it should be noted uh, that this cartoon has definitely informed uh, the movement that is associated uh, with the name alt-right. I guess um, suspected white supremacists that align themselves uh, um, on that persuasion definitely um, consume the program South Park. It's just a, um, it is a, a very consistent um, theme that I've noticed. They will consistently reference South Park um, make South Park references. Um, also, uh, the word cuck, um, the word cuck is being used amongst uh, suspected white supremacists with increasing frequency these days. I uh, was first exposed to this term um, in, uh, uh, I guess, viewing pornography, really. Um, this is definitely kind of the mainstreaming of very deviant behavior, um, very deviant um, uh, mindset. And, um, I, and if you do hear it, um, this word, it definitely does have racial connotations. I think a core um, fear of suspected white supremacists, especially those who uh, voted for Donald Trump, uh, is the emasculation of white males by uh, non-white, particularly black males, and um, this is just, uh, I guess, a welcoming moment all over. Um, one thing that I will mention is that I'm noticing with increased frequency um, that white males are, uh, I guess, more brazenly and openly referencing by anatomy. Um, this is just something that has uh, come up um, since uh, Donald Trump has been elected. This is just something that has um, oddly and uh, and awkwardly come up in conversations and even professional interactions. I guess I'll save that for uh, workplace racism. So uh, I don't know. These white supremacists, they have been energized. They have been emboldened. And um, they are up to something. We don't know what exactly. I'm very, very um, uh, alert as to what's going on. And I think that's something uh, that came up in conversation that I had with uh, a suspected white supremacist and along with a, a non-white uh, victim of white supremacy is that um, throughout the election of Donald Trump, early on in the cycle, uh, his rallies were widely advertised. Even I was getting notifications of them. However, after many notable uh, demonstrations took place at Trump uh, rallies, um, my exposure to announcements associated with these rallies, uh, I, I, I didn't get any. And I, you would see these rallies on TV, and most of the non-white victims of uh, white supremacy that I spoke with had no clue um, that these were taking place. So these people, these white supremacists, they, uh, they are planning something. They are operating in plain sight, and we are not privy to all the moves that they are making. And we have to be alert because something is afoot. Even the children know something is going on. So um, please stay safe, and, um, and I guess I will mute my line. 
Instagram. Uh, any folks that we have missed? Anyone that's Tom with Kirk? us? Yes, sir. Good evening, I'm Thomas in New York. Calling from the plantation in New Jersey. Um, yeah, I've listened to the show. Um, I couldn't get all the clips because I was traveling. But I just wanted to say that um, thus far, um, Mr. Trump hasn't um, disappointed at all in his, all these incidents of racism popping up everywhere. Not that it's a new trend, but it's just been um, hyped up a little. And um, as expected, um, I expect to see a lot more. And, um, you know, I, I think that the, um, the picks thus far have been good. Um, I mean, I, I expected these type of picks, selections, um, in particular, Mr. Sessions, great pick. Oh, that's an excellent pick. Um, Jeff Sessions, man, his name alone, it sounds like um, Ben Tillman or Strom Thurman or um, uh, what's the word? George Wallace. So I just thought that was a great um, selection from him. I expect to see a lot of um, new legislation and laws being pushed, very anti um, anyone who's not white. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just find that to be very interesting. Um, I, man, so many um, things happened this week. I mean, I think you touched on quite a few in um, the clip, clips that I heard. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is I was at the um, World Trade Center train station um, the new one they just built, a um, few billion dollars to build a train station, which is ridiculous. But um, either way, I'm there. And um, if you look at it, it's a giant, like, vagina. It has, like, this black slit up the middle, which opens up, um, and they open it up for 9-11 ceremonies. But um, it's all white. And <laughs> Um, you see um, the staircases is like a clitoris. Someone else had to see this, so I Googled it, and um, someone did, um, you know, a few people had comments about it um, and how it looked. But um, the interesting thing that I found about it is all around it is all these huge black phallic symbols. Um, they're dark-colored phallic symbols, especially at nighttime. Um, new, the New World Trade Center looks black. The only thing light is the, the lights just from the offices. So I just thought that was very odd. Not odd, but just um, I wonder what's the symbolism they were trying to make with that whole thing. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, anybody that we have not heard from? Anyone that we missed completely? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. There was a, a lot of interesting commentary throughout the audio segment. I believe it was uh, the first I'll start out with was the, I think it was the Young Turks. And it seemed like they were trying to, in one way, justify, like slightly justify some kind of a racist commentary on social media. And I think that was uh, Jink that was using the term stupid, trying to minimize it as uh, stupid commentary and comments. And it was interesting how she was reading the the words of whoever the person was, you know, explicitly, because you don't want to leave anything out. You know, I understand that. But it's, it's I, I noticed this trend where uh, when racism is being analyzed, 
even in the slightest, that uh, it will be like minimized and decreased as if it's nothing at all. Like it's not the most dominant factor. Because she said, if I'm understanding it correctly, that um, this is far beyond racism, as if racism is just very small. Like racism isn't dominant. Because I think that word dominant and powerful was used as well. So I think it should have been looked at that way. It's because it was another trend of that where in another segment, the guy was saying, I think it was, he was, he was using some kind of metaphors because it was sounding real abstract about how Donald Trump is, I guess, like activating um, white citizens either here or in other places to uh, engage in this um, behavior filled with racism and saying that they're coming out of the garbage, <laughs> coming out of the garbage can, brushing off the dust off of them. And that's like, that's very interesting language if you don't have the the mindset for uh, studying racism. You would think that those are the only racists. And this guy who's telling you that can't be just like them too because, uh, you know, that the word defiled was used by someone and another person said that bleach should be used to clean the uh the White House, and, you know, when it comes to racism, you know, symbolism and imagery is used also. Uh, bleach can make somebody think of white, and you have a non-white president, and there was those shirts saying, put the white back in the White House. You know, the guy, like, I think, I don't know if he was um, less confused, but he was saying, like, hey, you know, I, I understood what he meant. But from my understanding, it seemed like they were still trying to say, well, he didn't mean, he, he's not, he's not a racist or anything. But the guy seemed to be very focused on what that meant. But even though he didn't say somebody was black, you know, or not white, he was still kind of, it was still abstract and indirect. But that's very, that's very uh, good that he was able to still lock focus on him, on what he actually said. And on that, for one last thing, I think it was the uh, the young student that was harassed, that was uh, going to class or something. The news reporter, I don't know if that was a white person, they tried to say, oh, well, you know, she doesn't want to focus on the negative, so she just, uh, she's just going to continue to move forward or something like that, she said. And it was interesting about the Southern Poverty Law Center. The guy asked if, if uh, women should be a new group or something like that. Women should be a new group to qualify for the uh, hate crimes. So I don't know what that's supposed to be. Um, I don't know if there's any articles on that. But that's that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to share. For sure. Uh, one of our listeners up in Canada, she had commented on that and said that was that seemed like the new manifestation of white supremacy to have white women. And again, the majority of white women voted for Trump. But after all of that, for them to now come out and whine and cry and say, oh, it's terrible and I'm so afraid and life is terrible and that no good Donald Trump is going to throw me over the wall, uh, that they white women are inserting themselves as the primary uh, victims in all of this, the, the Trump presidency, um, 
they get it both ways. They practice racism, and then they're the number one victims. Uh, anybody, final comment to get in? Since we have anybody, if you have not spoken until now, uh, if you waited this late to get your commentary in, you will not get five minutes. You will get four minutes, and then we will wrap things up. Anybody that we have not heard from at all that needs their four minutes? If we got everybody, that is grand. Anybody we missed completely? Oh, anybody missed completely? Or I think we got everybody. I think we got everybody. Outstanding. Anything uh, quickly in the last few May minutes? May I be heard? Oh, yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, I just had a brief question for Gus or for any of the callers um, about, like, the state of current affairs. Oh, let's hear it. Um, I was just wondering your opinion about... Uh, I guess the dispersion of black Americans throughout the country, if it's safer during this time of obvious um, restructuring of white supremacy under Trump, if it's better that blacks be congregated in states or areas where there are other blacks, or if they should be um, dispersed or more integrated, um, you know, if they're in a state that is majority um, white, if they should probably move to, you know, a, another state that's majority um, non-white. Just your opinion on that during this um, turbulent time. I'll meet my line. Uh, my view is that I think you would have to, each uh, individual victim of racism would kind of have to make an assessment about what their strengths are in terms of their understanding of racism, white supremacy, and what it is that they're trying to do, the resources that they have, and their general uh, temperament and plan about how they want to go about the business of counter-racism. I think, number one, in the system of white supremacy, if you are in an area with a whole lot of black people, if you're in an area where there are very few black people, white people can do whatever they want to do to you in either environment, and I think they demonstrate that every day. So even if you are in an environment where there are very few white people or no white people, uh, they still have a variety of means uh, of terrorizing and dominating us uh, at will and pretty easily, even if they are not there. I know there are uh, a number of people who said, particularly after the Trayvon Martin situation, that it would be better to be in an environment with a lot of black people, but then you can end up with situations like what happened in Flint where your water is all poisoned. Uh, if you have a high concentration of black people, then whites already know that that's easy target area. We'll have low white sacrifice. Uh, if you're in an area where it's a high population of whites, not a whole lot of black people, obviously you're going to be isolated. You could have things like what happened at uh, Algiers Point where you had a higher population of white people down in the New Orleans area, Hurricane Katrina, smaller population of black people. Things got very bad. That was where a lot of uh, white terrorism went down. Uh, where whites were just threatening black people for existing. So uh, it can be problems either way. It can be benefits either way. I think it would just be up to the individual to figure out, you know, what they can honestly deal with best based on their, you know, who they are, the resources and strengths that they have as an attempted counter-racist, if that makes sense. Uh, Other folks want to respond to that last few seconds before we wrap up? Yes, I I think that... uh the the answer to uh, the lady's question would be as an individual uh, to apply to yourself as much as possible uh, a uh, the best counter racist codification thought speech and action and attempt to to practice it on a daily basis is your 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 best 
uh, means to uh, preserve yourself as much as possible. Uh, that's just from a logical standpoint, because otherwise, just like uh, Gus stated, it doesn't make a difference where you're around a whole lot of non-white people or in an area where you are the only one. Uh, uh, the system of white supremacy is so thorough that they know who you are. And if they wanted to kill you, they can anytime they want. But by having a, uh, a razor sharp uh, as possible uh, codified uh, understanding and practicing it uh, is uh, your best means under these horrendous conditions to preserve yourself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to, to recognize whites demonstrate worldwide they move non-white people wherever they want every day. So if you start out in an area that is predominantly filled with black people, whites can come in in the next five minutes and say, you all are going to be out of here. Or they can just invade your area so that now it is no longer predominantly black. That happened in Washington, and they'll call it gentrification. So they have a variety of schemes uh, to deal with whatever they want, even if you're the only black person in an area, seeing that happen where they can, you know, now decide that we have relocated and we're going to dump a whole lot of black people. So you will no longer be the only one. Uh, and I, also, I think it would be best if non-white people, if we can develop the skills to, uh, to the best of our ability, function in either environment uh, under the system of racism, white supremacy, because might be required to do so at any time. Uh, we've done our three hours. I did want to say quickly, one, we'll be here in 12, uh, uh, roughly 12 hours from now. We'll be here tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 Pacific Global Talk, talk Racism. Uh, I am very eager to hear our international listeners' perspective on the election, how it's been talked about in their part of the world, how, what white people have been saying about all of this. Some of our callers from other parts of the world have already written in about conversations where whites were very eager to talk to them about the election and did you see Donald Trump won in the states and blah 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 and all that so tune in we'll be looking forward uh, to tomorrow a good number of the folks who've been participating our international listeners have been kind of sharing their thoughts and predictions on the election so it'll be good to hear from them tomorrow uh, just a couple uh, quick thoughts that I wanted to make sure I got in Richard Spencer uh, is the white male with alt-right. He did the article on Reveal last week that we played. A couple of uh, people mentioned that report. He also did an interview on NPR this week. I didn't play it just because I figured that'd be back-to-back weeks of playing the same guy, same content, basically. Uh, but they had him on NPR. These are like big mainstream outlets giving this guy a lot of attention to broadcast and promote uh, his views. I thought that was interesting. You can check that out at NPR if you are so interested. Gwen Eiffel, her uh, services, memorial services, were held today. Uh, at the Methodist AME Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was held at the exact same church where the services for Dr. Francis Gress Welsing were held earlier this year. I uh, thought that was significant. Uh, again, condolences to the family, friends, colleagues, uh, fans uh, of Gwen Eiffel. Uh, also, I thought the way that they discussed Emmett Till's father, they said... The white man specifically at WNYC Public Radio, he said that we're going to discuss the key role that Emmett Till's father played in his death. And I had to actually go back and listen twice. I was like, his father was already dead by the time they got to all of this. How did his father play a role in his death? And just in my view, we talk about being accurate with words. If you're a journalist, words are your tools. 
It is not accurate. It's not even logical to say that Emmett Till's father played a role in his death. The most accurate way of stating that would be that racists used any means possible to avoid prosecuting the white terrorists who killed this child, this black child. Any reason, even further victimizing his dead black father to make up some excuse to say, oh, yeah, we can't do it because this dead nigger over here, you know, was at a white woman, too, or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, we, we, we can't prosecute anything. That would be the most accurate way of stating it, not finding some kind of uh, sloppy way of, of blaming this child's dead father and saying that he played a role. I have never heard that before. If someone can explain that to me logically, how a dead place, a dead person plays a role in anything. Set Gus straight. Uh, last thing I'll get in before we wrap uh, a listener wrote me an article that Tony Morrison wrote. Uh, people that have been listening to the cows for a while know that I am a big fan. Actually, it'll be two things. People that have been listening to the cows for not a while know that Gus is a big fan of Tony Morrison. The bluest eyes, one of my favorite books. That's the second book that we read uh, on our book club. She wrote a article on Donald Trump. I was going to read some of that article, but we had a lot of folks. It was great hearing from everybody, so I'm not going to read it now. But you can read it for yourself. It's in the New Yorker. Uh, it's titled uh, Making America White Again, and they have an image of a, a Klan rally where they're burning a cross. Uh, she makes some interesting points. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with it. She has VGQ like anyone else, but uh, if you want to check it out and give your thoughts, feel free. Again, it's Making America White Again, and I posted it online online on my Facebook page. I feel like I had a very active week uh, posting uh, social media. Uh, last thing, I had a lot of clips this week, uh, more so than normal. If I could have switched and maybe played one more clip, there is a radio station in Boston, WEEI, I think is it. Maybe we have some uh, New England listeners. There's a radio station uh, in Massachusetts, and I played a segment from their program some years back in 2014. Uh, they did a segment on sports talk radio. They were talking about Richard Sherman, Seattle Seahawks football player, who was mentioned already. Uh, he was called a thug the year that they won the Super Bowl. He, big incident. He was called a thug for yelling in close proximity to a white woman. So the folks uh, in New England on Massachusetts Public Radio or WEEI in Massachusetts, they did a segment talking about Richard Sherman and calling him a thug. I played it on the program uh, a couple years back. Uh, a white guy asked, he said, well, what's your definition for a thug? And the other white guy got all flustered and upset. Like, you know what it means. I'm not a dictionary. You could look it up if you really want to know. And so they went through his really interesting exchange. Same people, same program. Two years later, the Seahawks in New England played this week, right? So they have an exchange. They're talking about the game. Somehow it shifts from a discussion about the Seahawks and the Patriots and what a good football game it was. It shifts to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. That's the white quarterback and the white head coach for the new England Patriots. Both of them, there was a big to do about, they both perhaps voted for Donald Trump. It seems that they both did no big surprise. So they both voted for Donald Trump and people want to talk about that. And I can't believe this. And you voted for this guy and blah, blah, blah. So they have a big discussion about that. Tom Brady actually calls into the program and they ask him about that. Did you vote for Donald Trump? And so they go back and forth. He refuses to answer the question. They continue to move along. Wanda Sykes, who is a black female cowbell. Uh, also, she's an open lesbian. She was in 
Massachusetts. They were doing some sort of fundraiser. So she comes out. She's a comedian, entertainer. She comes out to do her set. They're talking about politics, the election. She is bashing Donald Trump. The crowd gets upset. She says he's a racist. The crowd gets upset. (laughs) They boo her. She gives them the middle finger and walks off stage. They talk about this. They're blasting Wanda Sykes like, ah, she's terrible. She's a disgrace. Wanda Sykes alleges that someone called her a nigger while she was on stage, and that was a part of her frustration. They go, they have people call in, and they're like, nobody called her a nigger. She's just lying. She's a terrible comedian, and rah, 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 and she, nobody wanted to hear her political ranting about Donald Trump being a racist and all that. We just want her to do a few jokes and, you know, keep the show moving, and she couldn't even do that. And it just, it was very, very interesting um, to hear them go from, and anybody that one of or not even one, the most popular post I've ever written in my life is about that Super Bowl between the Patriots and Seahawks, which had a lot of white supremacist subtext all the way around for many reasons. But to hear them go from that to did Tom, uh, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, did they vote for Donald Trump? And they, even these white hosts think that they did and talking about that. And then to Wanda Sykes and this incident that also happened in the same area, what she called a nigger, her accusing Trump of being a racist. She gets booed. It was fascinating. I was going to play it, but it was just I had too much stuff. I couldn't include everything. I might have to include it down the road, but it is fascinating. I would encourage anyone, if you live in the New England area, just to check it out because that was a big to do. What happened with Wanda Sykes and this this show or whatever that she was doing and, and the booing and all that. Big to do, especially up in that part of the world. We'll be here tomorrow. 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Very active week. We'll be here Tuesday. We'll have two programs on Thursday. Paul Ifaomi Grant will be with us live from the U.K. early on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. And then it's Thursday, so we do workplace racism every day, no holidays. So that'll be the late program this Thursday. If you have questions, problems, gripes, complaints, drop us an email, untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail. Dot com. Huge thanks to everyone uh, tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, I will again say sobriety would be best. We're moving into the holiday section now, so lots of you know parties and all that stuff. Uh, if you're involved in any of that, I would encourage be codified, not just with the alcohol, but all the way around. Know that they're going to have checkpoints, sobriety checkpoints out. Uh, to stop folks, particularly in states like California now and where have you, uh, where they have legal cannabis. Uh, that might be another reason to have a little extra scrutiny to see if they can smell anything in your vehicle, uh, what have you. So I would just encourage sobriety would be best. Let's make sure that our behavior at all times, in all places, reflects that war is being waged against black people. Uh, We never know if you're out and about, particularly in a vehicle. You never know when today will be the day that you are pulled over by Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw, any of these other race soldiers, badge or no. Let's take counter-racism seriously. In my opinion, I don't think having a cigarette, a blunt, a beer, a bottle of wine, I don't think any of that is going to better equip us to solve the problem, racist man, racist woman, racist child, at least for right now, the evidence does not show that. We will wrap there. We'll catch everyone in about 12 hours. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with 
ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.